You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 449. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host captain Jeff broadcasting live from Studio 1A at ABG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 20th of November, 2020. In today's episode, seven international peacekeepers die when their helicopter crashes in Egypt. A Boeing 737 hits up there while landing in Alaska. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, you couldn't give these away either. So get all settled in. Tray cables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 449 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds, in New York City. Much better. (laughs) Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today, if I can find her nice little sound clip here. Okay, here we go. From her lakeside studio in South Kakalaki. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA, IPA connoisseur. I don't know what the other thing is I just said. And commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper. Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so good to see you guys. Looking forward to a wonderful show today. <laughs> uh, with any luck, it might be somewhat acceptable uh, definitely a um tech problem free show today oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah for sure all right and also joining us from his studio in the english countryside professional photographer former raf RAAF fighter pilot retired captain for an international airline based in london it's captain nick good evening you lovely people great to be back on the show again can't wait. And uh, looking forward to a good one. Yeah, for I think a we're going to have some fun. Yeah, for a change. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> very, very kind of you to say so, sir. And with that, we're going to get on with the news. News. First up in our news notebook is an incident that happened in a town in Russia, and I'm not going to pronounce it. I'm going to let this young lady. Novosibirsk. I still can't understand what she's saying. She, she's about 13 years old. I think so. Okay. Yeah, Novosibirsk. Novosibirsk. There we go. Sea biscuit. Perfect. Yes. Um, and what what was the uh, airline involved here, uh, um, Steph? I'm going to let. Um, the 13-year-old pronunciation. Okay. Volga Dnieper. 
<laughs> and Antonov AN124, registration RA82042, performing positioning flight 4066 from Novosibirsk to Vienna. I know how to pronounce that one, Austria, with 14 people and 84 tons of cargo, which was mostly auto parts on board, departed the runway 25 at about 12.08 local time and was in the initial climb through about 1,800 feet MSL when the transponder signal as well as radio communication was lost. The crew returned the aircraft for a landing on runway 25, but overran the end of the runway on landing by about 200 meters or 650 feet. There were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage to wings and the landing gear. Engine number two, a D-18T inboard left hand, is missing its engine inlet following an uncontained failure. According to photographic evidence, the inboard left wing slats as well as the left hand fuselage were penetrated by debris at multiple locations near the wing root. And in the video, which we're going to play now, um, we'll kind of show you that uh, it wasn't just the number two engine that had issues. Uh, I believe the uh, engines number three and four were, well, what happened there? Let's try that again. It's a short bit of video. It's a very short video. <laughs> now it's working. <laughs> okay, now we see the Antonov AN-124 taking off from Novosibirsk. Yep, that place too. And you can see, even right there, you could see a little bit of uh, darker exhaust coming from the three and four engines. And uh, now we're watching some video of it uh, out there. I believe that's the departure turnout. And then uh, they're, they're circling something in this video that I cannot see, but it must be part of the engine, the number two engine inlet failure and inlet cowl. And they're showing a hole in the roof of a warehouse where the piece came through. And now we're looking at the, uh, the fan, um, what, do you, what do you call that? Fan housing? Fan, no, fan assembly? Cool. Yeah. Okay, and that comes back in for a landing. Now we're watching it just about to touch down. And there it is. Very nice landing. And it's going very, very fast because it's very, very heavy. And they just immediately came. They didn't have time to burn fuel or lower the weight of the airplane. And now it's kind of hard to see in this video, but they kind of go off the end of the runway, as they say, about 650 feet. And it comes to a rest. And miraculously no injuries or fatalities on this all the crew were safe and sound and i just heard on another very professional aviation prod, uh, podcast that just finished no you're right the first time a podcast <laughs> a podcast that uh, apparently the thing is like completely toast it's they're well, complete hull damage they're not yeah, going to be able to it off. yeah mm. Yeah. I don't know how many of those things are out there. Probably not that many, but uh, well, I I was taking a look actually, yeah. oh. and uh, I believe something? that the uh, Russian aerospace forces have twelve in service and fourteen in reserve. So presumably they're mothballed somewhere. Um, there are a few uh, in civil use. Um, uh, yeah, this is um, one of the ones that's civil use, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, UAE, yeah, United Arab Emirates have one oh. called in Maximus Air Cargo. Uh, Maximus. Yes, I know, great day, but no. uh, and the Ukraines have some. I wish uh, that were my name. What's your you name? Know. Maximus. 
<laughs> if you know what I mean. Oh my gosh! Exactly right. <laughs> see, what, see what I have to put up with here. <laughs> Uh, just imagine what my voice sounded to Nick, like to Nick earlier. <laughs> that was your, exactly your right. alter ego, Maximus. sounded like a 1970s porn movie. <laughs> well, we're not going to go into that on today's show. Probably best. Yes. Okay. I would have been very, very young in the 70s, but old enough, I guess. All right. Um, let's see. Ground witnesses reported engines three and four. Both right-hand engines were trailing spoke under departure. Uh, let's see. What else? The Siberia's Transport Prosecution Office. Hmm. That sounds hmm. very... Ominous? Yeah. Have opened an investigation into the accident. Uh, the airline reported aircraft carried 84 tons of cargo from Seoul, South Korea, to Vienna with a technical stop in Novosibirsk, where the aircraft, after departure to Vienna, performed an emergency return. Yeah, we already knew all that. Anyway, we have some more pictures that uh, we'll include in the show notes if you haven't already seen them. Uh, but uh, yeah, good, well, great job by the crew to maintain uh, control of the aircraft. Uh, you're looking at this number two, the closer uh, view of the uh, number two engine that lost its engine fan uh, and inlet cowl. Kind of reminds me a lot about that um, uh, the A380 um, accident. The uh, Qantas, Qantas one, yeah, flight. Uh, what was it? Thirty-three yeah, uncontained uh, failure. Um, I, I was uh, just amplifying the numbers that are in service. There are twenty-six in commercial service, and twelve are, or should we now say eleven, are with Vologna Dnieper. However <laughs> you pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, one uh, seven with Antonov Airlines in Ukraine, and one with Maximus Aircargo. Sweet, um, and a few others. Yeah, I was pretty sure it was 20-something. Yeah. I don't know why I knew that. That's a, that's See, a decent that's size close. fleet, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a vast airplane. It was uh, the heaviest uh, aircraft operating uh, civil, um, uh, even over the 747s until the Dash 8 came along, which I think uh, can operate a bit heavier. But it's quite old. You know, it's been around a bit. And what about the 225? Well, there's uh, one of those, yeah. right? What about the 225? Yeah. Hey, uh, you know what the uh, nickname is of this airplane? C five ski. C five ski, sure. Yes, because seems, it's seems right. It's very, very similar in design to the um, American-made reporting name is Condor. Hmm. Well, you know what. I think we've done enough damage to that one. Uh, they did as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I was just amazed that it, despite the fact it had quite a few people on board, no one was killed. Do you see the holes that I went mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right I, through that fuselage and out the other side again? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think I saw a picture that showed a like a part of the airplane missing on the other side where some yeah. of those parts went yeah, right through. Absolutely. Entered, so uh, entered on the left-hand uh, side of the fuselage about sort of head level. And exited uh, right up above uh, the cockpit, sort of uh, in the upper deck area, through the root of the right wing. Um, just cleaved. And it's a huge uh, gash it put in the fuselage. Has to be, what, eight feet tall? I mean, it just, mm -hmm. um, it must have been terrifying when. Uh, when all those bits came off and went plowing through the fuselage. Even more terrifying than normal. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, really terrifying. Really terrifying. This one Definitely justifiably terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think you're right about the birds because there's a picture of feathers and a I bit of blood that. splatter around mm. the intake of uh, one of the engines. Uh, it may possibly have lost both the three and four. Uh, so if or the guy power. was on a yeah, yeah on a two engine approach mm. or one and a half, did a uh, excellent job bringing it mm -hmm. back very impressed mm -hmm. and of course must have lost a lot of his electrics because uh, uh, we can see pictures of, of cut through uh, cables yep. and he obviously oh, lost his radios and his lost radios, transponder yeah. a lot of kit on board the flight deck probably would have died so uh, I'm just uh, you know amazed they got it back safely and very impressed with the crew of I think it's about six on this uh, aircraft. A representative from the Plane Talking UK podcast in our yeah. live audience says these engines were previously mandated for inspection by Ukrainian authorities back in March. So that I guess he's implying that uh, that did not take place. Oh, what do you know? Huh. Uh, if there are any lawyers out there, will you please speak to PTUK, not us? <laughs> right. Yeah. Tell them to cease and desist, please. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, if we uh, learn anything new about that, uh, I'm sure that uh, we'll hear about it on the PTUK, Plane Taking UK <laughs> they podcast. Copy it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, moving on to item B. Uh, now, Nick, you're the one that uh, included this in our news segment, and so I'm yeah, going to hand it over to you, sir. You thanks. Have the I thought this was uh, very interesting because uh, it just shows two sides of the same coin. Um, we're talking really about uh, new pilot training. So the first article um, was, I'm trying to, f uh, I can see who wrote it. Uh, oh, I'm trying to see. Uh, Global, I think. Source, CAE. Um, oh. oh, that's where the picture came from. Could be Flight Global. Yeah, I think Flight, Flight Global is the one that had the uh, article. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the article is uh, um, aviation will need 27,000 new pilots in 2021. That's not far away, 2021. Uh, only a couple of months. Um, and they're saying despite the industry slump and massive pilot layoffs, global civil aviation industry will require an estimated 27,000 pilots. Over the um, or uh, over a quarter of a million in the coming decade. Uh, and the forecast comes from the Canadian training and simulation provider CAE. And I think most of us know that because that company because you know they build and provide simulators around the world. And almost all of my simulator flying was that's done why I hate, CAE simulator. I hate that company. <laughs> yeah. I hate you. They don't have so, a. No, so uh, they're saying uh, this year the number of active pilots has declined uh, between uh, 87,000 uh, by around 87,000 to around 300,000, but we bump up to an estimated 374,000 by the end of 2021, say CA. Um, now, you've got that side of the coin. So there's this company that make a whole bunch of simulators, which on which obviously very required, a very essential part of pilot training, saying there's going to be a huge demand. The other side of the coin came from uh, the British Airline Pilots Association and was a video uh, giving uh, warnings to uh, people who are thinking of starting a career now and investing the huge amounts of money required uh, to 
um, you know, enrol in one of the approved courses. Uh, so I don't know if we can play that, Jeff. Are we oh, no, I didn't uh, prepare that to be played. Was oh, I supposed to? <laughs> okay. Um, I can do that, maybe. I just had that's just a picture that you see in the um, in the art in the uh, note. Uh, yes, that is. That's just a picture. You'd okay. have to go to YouTube and play it. But um, <laughs> well, let, let me, let me put it, it this way: we don't need to because <laughs> okay. uh, it's a nice lady from uh, British uh, uh, Airline Pilots Association. Basically, uh, and you can find that on YouTube or just go to the Balpa website basically saying that uh anyone considering starting a career right now should do so with great caution because uh despite the this forecast and other forecasts by training providers um there are so many unemployed uh, and very well qualified pilots out there still looking for jobs and the market is likely to be so depressed over the next few years they're saying that we would recommend you hold off on making any big decisions about uh, when to start your flying training if you want to. And I have to say, I would 100% agree. Uh, before you start training, it's relatively easy, having not yet made a, a financial commitment, to um, go find yourself another job for a couple of years, watch the market, see how, what is actually happening with the airlines, whether they're blossoming and whether everything's happening. Um, but once you've made your commitment and you've thrown all that money at it, uh, if you come out the other end and the market's still depressed and there's no job, uh, you've got the great problem of all your qualifications timing out before you can find someone to employ you and what's more you may find yourself in a job that doesn't pay particularly well and you've got a huge loan to uh, service so um, have a good strong think about it and this particular pair of articles really uh, em Emphasizes the two different um, sides. And if you only listen to one side, li only listen to all the predictions of lots of jobs and you'll be fine and carry on, and not to the other side from the professional pilots' uh, unions that are out there advising you take care, then you may make a poor decision. Right. And, you know, in a way, you know, the, the way that the unions make their money, so to speak, is more union members paying union dues. And so for them to say, you know, really think about this and, and don't, don't spend your money, uh, a lot of money on this training and get into a lot of debt because things may not be recovering as quickly as some entities may want you to believe, such as the company that makes all these simulators for your training. Yeah. Are you saying that they've got uh, different motives for... Yeah, but I'm, making their yeah. predictions. But For in sure. a way, the unions. I mean, they kind yeah, of I mean, have they, the they same. Should have, they should have the same. Right. Motive. I mean, they need the more, more pilots, the more income mm -hmm. they get from mm -hmm. from dues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they're basically saying, yeah, even though we may be hurting that, uh, it's well, I guess it doesn't really matter because you know if there are no jobs to be had, they're not going to be getting union dues from those pilots. So right. you know, they're just saying, let's be you realistic know, I think about this. It's so funny. You go back twelve months. Um, 14 months and it was such a sure thing that there was going to be this big pilot shortage um you know and then world events happen and things change and you know it's 
anyone's guess on the timing as to when things will rebound. I think we all think it's going to be quite a while, but you have to wonder that or wonder, you know, if and when things start to rebound when we're on the other side of this, what the pilot shortage numbers will look like at that point. You know, how quickly will hiring be able to meet the demands of how fast that, air travel comes exactly back? That's exactly right, Steph. And different parts of the world will have different rebound different. rates. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the States, uh, I, I think you guys will come back quicker. I think Europe will come back much slower. China will be at a different rate. There are countries out there which don't have a lot of internal flying, a lot of international flying. They won't bounce back very quick because, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to get into a lot of countries which still have uh, the pandemic there. Uh, of course, we're all hoping that everyone gets their jobs back and that new pilots are brought into the scene very quickly. But I really do, at the moment, uh, warn people about being too enthusiastic and committing too much money straight away. Yep. Yeah, I just think the timing is going to be very, very difficult to figure out and predict. <coughs> For sure. And I would also demand. say, uh, particularly uh, you know, if you're in Britain, uh, you can become a member of the British Airline Pilots Association and have access to all the very uh, well-organized resources um, for free if you're unemployed. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you only start paying when you've got a wage. So... Um, you know, apply and become a member and get all those members' resources. You'll be able to have access to lectures and information. And, of course, you'll be able to pool your knowledge with uh, all the existing airline pilots that are out there. Uh, it is a great resource, and I'm sure other unions around the world run a similar system. So pick your country, pick your union, uh, and go and pick those guys' brains, because that's how you'll find out the real in information, unbiased information. I do have some advice for you, though. If any airline pilot ever attempts to give you any financial advice, completely... <laughs> go running the opposite yeah, direction? Don't, don't take yeah. that advice. Do, what they, yeah. do the opposite of what they tell you. <laughs> then you'll yeah. be good. Yeah, we know why so many airlines go bust. They're usually run by pilots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sadly, he's right. All right. Uh, very good. Thank you, Nick. Um, moving on to item C. Five Americans among seven dead as peacekeeping helicopter crashes in Egypt. This is from Stripes.com. Stripes, that was a great movie. Um, mm. A black, mm. nothing to do with the... Uh, <laughs> the news organization publication yeah a black hawk of the no that's the caption uh seven service members were killed um no maybe not a black hawk at the multinational forest and reserve the international no that is a caption um seven service members were killed including five americans when a helicopter carrying international peacekeepers in egypt crashed near the southern tip of the sinai peninsula on thursday we are deeply saddened by the loss, the multinational force and observers said in a statement. This included one Czech, one French, and five U.S. MFO members. MFO. Hmm. Multinational force and observers. Oh, right there. You're very clever. Uh, the U.S., France, and Czech Republic are among 13 countries that provide military personnel to the multinational force and observers. See, I can do it, too. Mm -hmm. I'm a quick learner. Which, since the early 1980s, has monitored the Israeli-Egyptian peace accord signed in 1979. Eight people were on board the helicopter. The only survivor, an American, was typical, right, uh, was medically evacuated, MFO has said. We wish the one U.S. MFO member who survived the crash a speedy recovery, the organization said. Um, doesn't, does it say at all what they think happened here? It happened near the... I think it was an uh, engine failure. Oh, okay. 
it said I was reading it earlier. All right. But it's got two engines, so there must have been, you know, it must have been at a critical stage of flight or um, something else. But yeah. I mean, it's just oh, so it, sad. Mecha- it just says mechanical failure. Yeah. Uh, peacekeeping forces are just, you know, they're just doing one of the best jobs in the world, you know, with regards maintaining stability. And, uh, you know, it's a dangerous job, uh, not the least because, uh, you know, you're. You're in harm's way a lot of the time, and to lose them on a what looks like a straightforward helicopter flight is very sad. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, continuing on, this was sent in to us from uh, Robert, Richard, Dick, so many names, but we're going to Hamish. Just, Hamish. Uh, ah, but Hamish. Robert Excellent. Fairbairn. Uh, sent us this piece of information. Very interesting. The flight uh, was still near the airport when the engine on the Diamond DA-40 November Golf quit. The audio is revealing of the kind of pilot that was at the controls. Uh, So I'm going to play some audio while uh, Liz puts up the overlay for the Diamond DA-40, and we're going to listen to uh, ATCLive.net audio. In New York, 168, Lima Alpha, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Hey, Lima Alpha, go ahead. We lost our engine. Hey, Lima Alpha, roger. Um, would you like to go back to Orange County? Hey, from Vectors. Hi, right, Lima Alpha, cleared back to Orange County. Fly a heading of 010. 010. Hey, Lima Alpha, would you like an approach? Hey, from Vectors for uh, ILS-4. Hey, Lima Alpha, turn right heading on 170. 170. 9859, New York Center, 1346. 
Uh, if you're watching the video or you're looking at the show notes, you see that the Diamond DA-40, um, if you're not familiar, is an Austrian-made airplane, and it is a single engine airplane. So when he says he's lost an engine, he's lost complete propulsion on this airplane. And he's lost the engine, not the just engine, an exactly. engine. Exactly. Yes. And they're in IMC, Instrument Meteorological Conditions. They cannot see what you would normally see without, you know, the clouds and all that stuff. And wow, I'm so impressed with how he didn't seem rattled or upset in the least bit. He very, very professional and kept it together um, amazingly well. And I think the air traffic controller also did a great job of keeping his, you know, calm and and uh, demeanor during this entire thing. I love that last call you made or one of the last calls. Uh, the airport is 12 o'clock and a quarter mile. <laughs> a quarter mile. That's pretty darn like close. Is the, you know, is the visibility that the. I don't know. I'm not sure at what point. Uh, the last time that he said he was IMC was at 2,300 feet. But, uh, you know, with now uh, people that know this airplane know that it, if you look at the picture, it looks it's a very, very good much like glider. A, yeah, very gliderish, mm -hmm. uh, very long wingspan. And uh, I guess it has a very great uh, uh, glide ratio, which is it helpful in this situation, right? If you were. Yeah, a, I mean, if, if you're going to have an engine failure, a diamond's a good aircraft to pick because it's, it's going to glide for quite a distance, gives you some time and options. Yeah. And I, I apologize, I missed the very beginning of the um, audio there. I had a, unfortunately, a phone call I had to take. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's uh, I'm, I'm glad everything ended up really well with this. So I, I'm questioning you guys, because obviously I'm not as familiar with um, the sort of air traffic systems over there than I'm over here. Um, in the UK, the controller would either have cleared its frequency or um, found a discrete frequency to work this guy on. Uh, and uh, once someone says mayday on a frequency, everybody shuts up. But this was just incredibly busy. So I, I, I've got to admire the pilot who managed to cope with dealing with this emergency and trying to listen out for his call sign amongst all the other stuff that was going on to hear his instructions. Because um, in the UK, I have a feeling that would have been handled slightly differently. Yeah, and that area that they were in is just so darn busy. I'm not even sure they would have a discrete frequency to send them to. What do you think, Steph? Oh, I'm sure they could yeah, probably uh, find one. But I, one, you know, two, one, I know five. the audio was yeah, one twenty one point five. But I know the um, you know, the audio here was compressed time wise as well. I think it said in the article. Um, so depending on how quickly things happen, you might not have time to do that. I guess. Yeah. But I agree, I though. I, I had the same kind of impression that you had nick where you know all these other things were going on at the same time and this guy was like <laughs> right on the edge of uh living and dying in this yeah. particular incident yeah um and uh i was also impressed that he used the magic word mayday yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I, I heard good. that and i went what what is that wasn't I is declaring it, an emergency is it very french I think it was May 1st when the, this all happened. Yeah. It's the, it's the Russian New the Year. The we'll hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> yeah. We're having their parades. <laughs> but uh, I'm so glad he got down safely. Um, it's, it's interesting. He brought back memories of procedures which we had in the Air Force for engine failures um, when I was flying single-engine trainers, the NAT uh, and the um, Hunter and the uh, Hawk. Um, we were home to the airfield, 
uh, and we would just ask the controller, uh, you know, RAF controller would know how to do it, to give you a one-in-one. And uh, you could explain it to a civilian controller very quickly. You would just say, point me at the airfield and call me my range every mile, please. And then in the cockpit, what we would do would be to descend at 1,000 feet a mile. So we would match our height in thousands of feet to the range in miles. And we would be in cloud flying a dead engine approach. And uh, if you were in it for any length of time, you'd end up around 300 knots as you burst out of cloud in the overhead of the airfield. And then you could use that 300 knots of energy to circle around the airfield, gently bleeding off your speed until you picked a runway that was suitable to land on. Um, but that was always a, a great way to get back because it got you back into the overhead. You could even do it with a cloud base at down to 500 feet if you're an instructor. Uh, and uh, then at 500 feet, you'd just whistle run around in circles until you uh, got yourself into a good position to uh, pl pluck a runway and throw yourself down onto it. Pluck a runway. Mm. Yeah. Lovely. Well, um, that one would do. Troy Heyman in our live audience uh, says, do we know that it was all on the same frequency? Live ATC audio sometimes has multiple frequencies in a feed. That's true. That's a good point. Maybe it did sound like it was the same frequency to me, but it may not have been. So, yeah, it sounded yeah, like the same controller talking to yeah. multiple aircraft, but whether or not he had him isolated. But, uh, we, we certainly had some other aircraft pitching up on that frequency. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, job well done uh, under the circumstances by the uh, instructor pilot in the airplane and the air traffic controller. Oh, here's a sad one. Um, this was uh, sent to us from uh, Tim. Yeah, long time listening, first time contributing flying instructor in Australia. Wait a minute, Liz, I thought we were supposed to ban anybody sending feedback from Australia or New Zealand. Sorry, Jeff. That's okay. We'll let it go this time. I didn't know they had bears in in Australia. Yeah, well, this actually oh, last happened. Last week we had a frog strike, and this week we have a bear yeah, strike. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I want to know what was said between Liz and Jeff in that moment there, because clearly there was something. Hi, APG team. Uh, just spotted this article that I thought you'd be interested in. A very unfortunate bear in Alaska. And uh, this is from the uh, samchewy.com. Uh, S-A-M-C-H-U-I dot com. Uh, Alaska Airlines B-737 hits bear on runway. An Alaska Boeing 737-700 has been damaged following a collision with a brown bear in Yucatan, Alaska. None of the passengers on board were injured, but the bear was killed immediately. Are those, the, is they, are those the bear's footprints? I don't know. I don't think so. Don't those, think look so. Like, those look like, with a sore those head? Look like shoes. Yeah. Maybe the bear was wearing shoes, but I doubt it. I think that those it's were no shoes. It's very cold out. Human there. footprints. Uh -huh. The incident occurred shortly before 1830 local time, so the flight crew had limited visibility on the dark runway. A runway inspection 10 minutes prior to flight AS-66 landing showed no signs of wildlife. However, the two pilots spotted the bear and its two-year-old cub crossing the runway as the plane was slowing down after landing. The nose gear missed the bears, but the captain felt an impact on the left side after the bears passed under the plane. Uh, the flight crew then noticed the deceased bear lying about 20 feet off the center of the runway while taxiing to the gate, according to an Alaska Airlines statement. Ah, uh, yeah. The cub was later found uninjured. The two-year-old uh, two um, cub 
was found uninjured by airport officials. The left engine cowl was damaged, and the airline has said that the Boeing 737 will need to be repaired over the coming days. You'll see some of the pictures of the damage to the left engine cowling on or in the show notes. And uh, oh, interestingly, the um, I think the pilot, the captain, ended up uh, adopting the two-year-old bear cub. That's kind of kind of a nice ending, a nice story. Just kidding. If you're wondering, <laughs> I think the people on my crew are gone. Really? Did he? Re- I don't. See oh, that we, in the we article. knew that did not happen. We were just. Oh, you just. Yeah, yeah you never you want to take anything just I say seriously. To, to use that graphic. <laughs> oh, below 50%. <laughs> Thank you, whoever put that up there. <laughs> okay, well, I'm just trying to make it a little bit spicier, a little bit more mm-hmm. human interesty kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no? but I want to know what really happened to the bear cap. I know. It's cup. kind of. I actually, I was reading the story on. Um, or reading through comments about this story on social media, and I think there's a lot of speculation that it's not a great time of year for bear cubs to lose their parent, as it were, no. um, just because of hibernation and the time of year and foraging for food and things like that. But well, I'd I'd really like to say the I'll tell you the very uh, insensitive thing that Captain Nick said he would have done in this situation, but I, I can't because <laughs> just well, very insensitive. I, I am a bear hunter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. We know. All right. Um, Let's move on then before we get into any trouble. Uh, Pilots of Pobeda Pobeda Airlines, never heard of them, 737 flight, uh, draw a male um, genitalia (laughs) in the sky during scheduled flight in support of footballer. And uh, we're showing it on the screen now if you're watching the video version of the show. Was it supposed to look like the footballer or what? Mm, a part of the footballer. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, a very, uh, well, I'm not going to go any further on that one. Uh, two pilots with Russian-based airlines, Pobeda Airlines, are under investigation after performing an unorthodox flight route deviation. On November 11th, the pilots in command of scheduled flight 407 from uh, Moscow to... Yekaterinburg routed their Boeing 737-800 to form a pattern of a giant phallic symbol in the sky. Anyone who happened to be looking up from the ground most likely uh, not have taken notice as the maneuver being done at crews at 35,000 feet. Yeah, well, they probably weren't even putting out a contrail, so they would have known. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, flight enthusiasts who look at sites such as FlightAware and FlightRadar24 would have seen the ground track of the uh, flight. And uh, says the flight uh, normally takes about two hours and some change to complete, uh, but it ended up taking 30 minutes more to get to its destination due to the added route. Ooh, 30 minutes. Not bad. Based on the scheduled arrival time, the flight was 20 minutes late. That's a wink-wink right there. Um, according to Metro News, the pilots were showing support for Artem Zuba. Zuba, I don't know. Captain D Z Y U B A, captain of the Russian football team. He was recently suspended from international service after videos of him pleasuring himself in bed were leaked online. Uh, the video was apparently <laughs> naughty, ab- naughty. <laughs> they keep using inappropriate words. <laughs> the the video was apparently obtained by an alleged hacker who tried to blackmail the football star for five million, and he probably said, "Yes, go stuff it." Yeah, so to speak. Um, 
Russians, uh, Russia's Federal Air Transport Agency has since launched an investigation into the matter, and the pilots of the low-cost Aeroflot subsidiary have since been suspended. Uh-oh. Hmm. Yeah, according to the report, the pilots managed to pull off the stunt because they had requested permission to deviate from the planned route, quote, due to a need to check radio navigation equipment. The air traffic controllers manning the airspace at the time are also being interviewed to confirm whether they did indeed grant permission for the deviation, even though they might not have been aware of what the pilots' true intentions were. I'll bet they did. They're probably all in cahoots. <laughs> I don't know. Like, when we get to, you know. When we check on with you, we're going to need a few minutes here to, you know, do, an unusual, do the thing we discussed. Yes. Practice our artwork. Wink, wink. <laughs> anyway, you know, it's usually just U.S. Navy pilots up to these kind of shenanigans. But, you know, the Russian pilots wanted to get in and have some fun with it as well, I guess. And finally, moving on to our last item. Yes, it's been a while. Um uh, since we've talked about it, because we've kind of shied away from talking at all about the uh, 737 MAX, because we just uh, got so tired of it, um, looks like uh, they finally have approved the final rule regarding uh, recertification. We were maxed out, Jeff. Uh, maxed out. Yes, we were maxed out. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> uh, the, in, from the FAA.gov um actual final rule i'll read a little bit of the summary of the final rule after careful consideration of the comments submitted and further review of the proposal the faa adopts this final rule this final rule mandates corrective action that addresses an unsafe condition on the 737 max this unsafe condition is the potential for a single erroneously high aoa sensor input received by the flight control system to result in repeated airplane nose-down trim of the horizontal stabilizer, which, in combination with multiple flight deck effects, could affect the flight crew's ability to accomplish continued safe flight and landing. As proposed in the Notice of Published Rulemaking, the corrective actions mandated by this airworthiness directive include a revision of the airplane's flight control laws, uh, part of the software, the new flight control laws now require inputs from both AOA sensors, probably should have been that way to begin with, in order to activate MCAS. They also compare the inputs from the two sensors, and if those inputs differ significantly, greater than 5.5 degrees for a specified period of time, I will disable the speed trim system, which includes MCAS, for the remainder of the flight and provide a corresponding indication of the deactivation on the flight deck. The new flight control laws now permit only one activation of MCAS per sensed high AOA event and limit the magnitude of any MCAS command to move the horizontal stabilizer such that the resulting position of the stabilizer will preserve the flight crew's ability to control the airplane's pitch by using only the control column. This means the pilot will have sufficient control authority without the need to make electric or manual stabilizer trim inputs. The new flight control laws also include FCC I guess flight control computer integrity monitoring of each FCC's performance and cross FCC monitoring, which detects and stops erroneous FCC generated stabilizer trim commands, including MCAS. Uh, it goes on. Uh, that was just most of the uh, summary of this. So uh, the U.S. Uh, Federal Aviation Administration has deemed that this will take care of making this safe to fly passengers again. And um, the Airline Pilots Association, the main union for most of the 
airline pilots in the U.S. and Canada. I think uh, over 59,000 pilots at 35 U.S. and Canadian airlines uh, put out this statement. Uh, the Airline Pilots Association, um, let's see, based on the airworthiness directive, ALPA believes that the engineering fixes to the flight-critical aircraft systems are sound and will be an effective component that leads to the safe return uh, to service of the 737 MAX. While ALPA continues to review the specific enhanced flight crew training details contained in the Flight Standardization Board report, the months-long process involvement and collaboration by all segments of the industry has demonstrated an earnest commitment to the aircraft's airworthiness and improved documentation and procedures. Uh, anyway, that's, so that's about half of their uh, prepared statements. So they're basically giving their blessing for uh, pilots represented by this particular union that uh, it's a, they think it's okay to go ahead and fly the airplane. So uh, now it's not true that all unions around the world and, in fact, even some regulatory agencies around the world have adopted the same stance. So um, I think they still have a, a road to go uh, before it's going to be authorized for passenger service throughout the world. But most of the operators will be in the States. Yes. So I'm guessing that that's really good news. Boeing will be able to start shifting them away from Boeing Field. Uh, actually, I'm just thinking some of the airlines may not be so keen to have them yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Timing is uh, everything and timing's not. Yeah, are you sure it's ready? Right Maybe yeah. we should take a little closer. <laughs> we really don't way. need it right now. We can hold off a little bit longer. Yeah. There's a bunch of them, uh, American branded ones at um, Tulsa. Uh, they were parked all over oh, really? the place. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure Boeing will be delighted to get all this behind them. Oh, yeah. For sure. Okay. That's it for our news today on uh, the show. And let's get over here to this page so I can play this. And you know what that means? It's time for getting to know us. Let's see. It's been about, that's been more than a week, right? It's been a, about a week and a half, something like that, since we recorded uh, episode 448. And uh, glad to be back with the crew and the community, especially those of you who are with us in the live audience. Great to see you all. Um, and to all of you listening, thank you for your continued support. We do really appreciate that. Um, Steph, what have you been up to? Yes since the um, last show gosh work has been really busy still um which is kind of crazy um just considering uh, everything going on in the in the world these days and considering what, i'm happened? not in no oh, no okay. yeah <laughs> no it's just it's i mean i've kind of been saying this for months now i'm kind of surprised even with um you know covid stuff and everything else sorry i probably shouldn't say the word on the, the podcast um oh you can say it we COVID, just, COVID, we can say COVID. It. we're not worried care. about it okay no other podcasts don't want to talk about it but it's just um even though i don't work um in a field of medicine that's um you know on the front lines from that sense we've still been very busy just with um our usual patient load and everything else and it's our busy time of year kind of october november december where everyone's met their deductibles and they would like to get in for their elective things that they've put off for the year and um you know it actually hasn't been that bad mm -hmm. this year with people asking to get things done by the by the end of the year, although this week was definitely an uptick in the amount of times I heard that question. Oh, do you think I could get this done by the end of December? Yeah, I think so still. So, 
for another couple of weeks. Anyway. Yeah. So that's been busy. And then um, did a little bit of flying last weekend, mostly in the 182 mm-hmm. and over at a um, small local airfield where they were having a bit of an aviation day. So they were doing airplane rides and some tandem skydives and um, I think they had some remote control aircraft on the field, um, powered parachute stuff, um, and some really good barbecue. So that was a lot of fun. A little confusion I heard uh, when they pushed out somebody um, that didn't have a parachute, wasn't supposed to be skydiving that day, something like that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That definitely didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) It was busy. You know, you can't keep track of everything. Yeah. No, no. It's going to happen. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Your your pilot in command is definitely keeping track. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Cool. Anything else? So, um, just work, work, I don't work, think work. So. Just work, work, work. Yep. Where is that? I know I have a sound effect that does that, but I just don't know where it is. Yeah. I'm looking no, I feel like, you know, work, work, there we go. I found work, it. That's it. Work, work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I kind of started to apologize in advance when I got joined you guys on the show. I'm just, I'm definitely feeling a little bit tired after the past two or three days at work. So if you see me yawning and, um, you know, nodding off, just someone. Someone gently shake me. Well, push we try to on my shoulder. Now, why is my yeah. video flashing? I'm, I don't even have green screen going, so it's not related to green screen. Isn't that I weird? Have no idea. My yeah. video apparently has not been great on the show today, so I apologize for that too. Ah. And I have no idea why. Your audio is fine. That's all I care about. Okay. So. Um, but no, I'm, I'm glad to be here chatting with you guys and doing this. This is highlight of my week, as always. Ah, sure. it's always a highlight for all of us to see you and hear you. Um, any, uh, what's, what's the weather supposed to be like this weekend? Are you going to be able to get mm, some I think it's supposed uh, to be, yeah, in? I think it's supposed to be really nice. Good. Um, yeah, should be good. Very good. Mm-hmm. And then I guess next week here in the U.S. Rick is today, Jeff? I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead, Liz. Liz. I just wondered if you were going to mention where Rick is today. No, no nobody cares about Rick, Liz. Let's not even mention him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're going to mention we're going to mention Rick. Thank you. Uh, this, you know, she's always keeping uh, keeping things in order, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, well, you know, let's talk about Nick. I mean, Rick. Where the where the heck is Rick? I, I'm just wondering where where he could possibly be. I don't know. Not sure where he is. Hmm. But. Might have something to do with this little hint, this little audio hint. I think he uh, picked up some extra flying this week, apparently. We were hoping to have him on with us. Uh, we yeah. kind of expected it. We thought that was going to happen. Yeah. And, what was um, she taking? Crates of Lays down to Hawaii. Had something to well, do with Lays, but I'm not sure exactly they were the flower variety or not. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think, yeah. What would you take from the U.S. to Hawaii? Everything that you can't get on an island. Yeah, probably a lot of things. A can't lot of get things. On an island. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he's mainly Amazon boxes, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. I don't know, but they do more than that. I don't know if this kind of flying would would do the, be the uh, the Amazon Prime sort of flying or not. I'd hope that he was going to be here today because one of our feedback items uh has to do with an unusual uh mel um operation of a 767 uh, cargo jet we'll uh, save it yeah we're going to save that for uh the next time he's on uh so uh anyway we'll see 
what happens. So, Rick, we miss you, and uh, hope you're having a good trip, and we uh, look forward to seeing you on the next show. Now, the next show, next week, I was going to say, is uh, the U.S. celebration of Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And so we're, you know, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about... We'll have to take a look at the calendar. Our, pardon me? I said we'll have to take a look at the calendar. Yeah, we're going to look at the calendar after we record out. today to see whether we're going to be able to record a show earlier in the week or, you know, what what the deal is going to be. But for those of you listening who are in the United States and celebrate Thanksgiving, um, happy Thanksgiving from all of us at ABG. We hope you have a great celebration. Uh, your your gathering might be somewhat limited <laughs> because, um, you know, they're trying to control this uh, whole pandemic thing and uh, kind of, you know, asking us to shy away from large gatherings of folks. And uh, good so, luck with that. Yeah. No, yeah. I think uh, plans that I had previously entertained will probably be changed as well because of it. Yeah, so. usually you go to somewhere in Tennessee, don't you? Yeah, I go to visit with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have not talked to them in the past week, but um, yeah, that might get curtailed. So we'll Probably see. not a, not a go probably this not. year, huh? Mm, probably no, not. No uh, ghost, uh, ghost pepper um, chips? That we usually <laughs> no, do? we did that earlier in the year. Is that part of your tradition? <laughs> uh, we've done it a few times, yes. Yeah. I actually don't have any right now. I only oh, bought darn. some in... Uh, they had them in the grocery store in Utah when we were out there a couple mm. months ago, and uh, I convinced my brother to and my nephew to try it, and they've not spoken to me since. <laughs> Are they still with us? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they survived. You're a mean person. You are. No, I'm a wonderful older sister and aunt. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Um, Nick, how's everything been going with you? You, you had some kind of a speaking engagement, uh, if I recall. I did from lockdown. So uh, I got asked by uh, a wonderful charity, uh, which I'm, I think having spoken to you about it before, uh, is uh, in the States as well as many other countries around the world, uh, Lions International. So a local Lions club who, of course, have had great problems uh, fundraising. Uh, this year with all the restrictions all their normal uh, very gregarious events that they hold you know uh, big fairs and uh, you know river races and that sort of thing have been uh, cancelled so they dreamt up an idea of uh, doing some zoom talks and uh, I got uh, asked if I'd do one Uh, so yeah I did that on I think it was Thursday Um, it's going to be a part a two-parter so uh, just did uh, one half of the talk. Um, we had nearly 60 Zoomers paying money to uh, take part, which was really nice. So generated several hundred pounds for the Lions. Oh. Uh, and yeah, fantastic. And doing the next one on the 16th of December. So uh, I know we had some of our listeners uh, logged in and uh, listened. So thanks very much indeed uh, for that. Uh, Chris Postal was one, uh, and and others. Uh, Nigel Demery. Uh, so, yeah. Never heard of the man. For, yeah. <laughs> thanks very much for taking the time and, more importantly, contributing the money to the charity. Uh, fantastic. What was your um, take? <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> And, um, of course, uh, I've been moonlighting for other podcasts as well. So uh, I um, am busily writing, uh, preparing myself for an interview uh, with the wonderful George Lee, 
who were fantastic uh, Air Force pilot, civil airline pilot for Cathay Pacific, but much more importantly, uh, three times, that's three times on the trot, uh, World Open Gliding Champion. So, oh, wow. I mean, that's a feat never been uh, achieved uh, before at or after or since. So, uh, marvellous fellow. He's uh, in his 80s now, lives in Australia, uh, and I'll be interviewing him uh, over the internet at some point uh, for PT UK. Uh, so, uh, I've been reading his fantastic book and uh, preparing myself for that. So, that's been something that's been keeping me very busy. Oh, I'm glad they found somebody that speaks Australian. Yeah, I know. You see, I'm multilingual. Ah, uh-huh. uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Look forward to hearing that. Does that mean I have to listen to the PTUK, though, to hear that interview? Uh, probably. Yeah, okay. I'm probably, oh, sadly. Well. I may pinch it. a bit for a plain tale, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Very good. We'll look forward to it. Okay. And uh, myself, I just uh, flew a trip. Um, hey, you're the pilot of course yeah i keep forgetting I'm the you're active airline pilot <laughs> <laughs> you know the title of the show airline pilot guy that's yeah that's jeff reactivated right. yeah. uh, now somebody had said uh, sent us some feedback saying that uh, that we needed to find another person that was actually actively flying in the airlines i'm thinking wait a minute <laughs> yeah you know it was just a small hiatus that's all yeah Brief right. hiatus. you can you can get uh, medicine for that mm. Mm. true Mm-hmm. Sure. Anyway, stomach is hiatal hernias. So I had a three-day trip uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I had a really, really good uh, first officer, uh, Erica. And uh, so, so I show up on Monday morning, get there a little kind of early, you know, because I'm still trying to get used to all these um, uh, routines that uh, I have not been doing for quite some time. Not only, you know. Or just flying at all, actually, and then flying something that I'm not used to flying. Uh, new switches and new flow patterns with the pre-flight procedures and loading the box is different, all that kind of stuff. So I get in there and sit myself down, get all my luggage stowed away, and I look down at the uh, uh, multi, what the MCDU, whatever that stands for, a display unit, something multi-something display unit. <laughs> I should know that. And... Uh, so I start putting, you know, like bringing it up and I'm looking at it going, hmm. I know I'm new, but it doesn't look like what I'm used to seeing. I think oh, I just must be new. And so I'm putting some stuff in. It's just not working the way it normally does after I enter data. And it's asking for the, some of the same data that I normally put in, but it, like in a different position from which, from what I remembered. And I'm thinking, Oh, I wish my first officer would show up because, um, I, I think I need Just some help. Just work this <laughs> multifunctional <laughs> control someone, someone and display help. unit. Yeah, that was trying to search what for it? Multi what? Multifunction control and display unit. Oh, okay. So the yeah, M must stand for multifunction control yeah. and display unit. Okay, thank you. Should be the MFCDU, don't you think? Uh, we just called it the MFDU. Yeah, this, I call it the thing that you put all the stuff in. Ours <laughs> <laughs> is quicker. Okay. And uh so I'm I'm still I'm struggling with this honestly and I'm starting to get a little nervous because you know there there's the passengers are starting to board and so I know we have like less than 30 minutes to or 35 minutes to go and uh the walk around has not been done yet and I'm thinking where is my first officer? And so she finally shows up 
I've never, I've never flown with her before, but I'm thinking that, you know, she must have been on this airplane for quite some time. So I'm going to really appreciate this experience that she has. And so I explained what I'm looking at and what I'm having troubles with. And she, and I said, I'm thank, so happy that you're here to have somebody with experience. And she said, well, I'm brand new too. <laughs> I'm like, huh? <laughs> and, uh, Uh-oh. I said, when did you go through training? Good times. October. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> so, so like, what are we, the blind leading the blind? Exactly. Basically. So, <laughs> thank goodness the passengers don't know that we're up there going, What's, what is this? Why can't we figure this out? So we uh, end up having to manually, I think she called it hand jam, um, the, all the stuff that uh, normally is automatically uploaded and or can be uploaded seamlessly. And, um, you know, the ACARS uh, was not actually communicating, although it looked like it was trying to communicate, but it just wasn't communicating the way it normally does. We're thinking the mechanic comes up there and goes, yeah, I loaded up at some time this gate uh, because it's kind of in a hole and doesn't always communicate well from this area. So we're like, okay, that, that makes sense. There were some write-ups um, over the past week or so that had dealt with issues with the, um, uh, the ACARS system. So we're thinking, well, it must must have something to do with that. So we backed off from the gate and flew successfully to uh, Sarasota, Florida. And a couple little weird things occurred. But again, we're both brand new. We're kind of going like, you know, that's I know we're new, but it just doesn't seem like what we remembered everything is supposed to look like. So I said, let's do this. When we're on the ground in Sarasota, after all the passengers have gotten out the airplane, Let's just completely shut down the airplane. You know, just turn it off completely. No, no electrons flowing through its veins, and restart the whole thing. Basically, do a Control Alt Delete. You know, restart of the computer, and maybe everything will be back to normal. No, it was the same kind of displays that we weren't used to seeing, and we were still scratching our heads on this one, thinking uh, something doesn't feel right about this. But we, you know, we know it flies just fine, so we flew it back to Atlanta. And then uh, when we were flying up to Atlanta, we were thinking, you know, let's call the duty pilot and see if maybe they can get us in touch with somebody who has a lot of experience on this airplane, like one of the lead air uh, line check airmen. Maybe they can, you know, kind of tell us that we're all, you know, crazy and everything is just fine and we're idiots. Or maybe they'll confirm our suspicions that something's not quite right. And the latter is what happened. Uh, we uh, ended up uh, taking some photos of the screens that we were looking at that we'd never seen before, or things were just not the way they normally look. And the line check airman goes, "Uh, yeah, that I've never seen that. That's not right. That's not supposed to be what you see in the Boeing 717. And we thought, oh, okay. And then, so we call maintenance and they're going out and they don't really understand what we're looking at. All they know is whether the thing is working or not, you know, and, uh, so there, and I'm trying to tell them, you know, I'm thinking that we're going to probably want a new airplane. Um, I, what I'm really concerned about is I'm going to fly this airplane, the same airplane to Charlotte, North Carolina, and we're going to go on our layover and leave the airplane with a new crew. And that new crew may look at it and go, Hmm, don't think so. There's something wrong with this and we're not going to fly the airplane. And then we have an airplane stuck in Charlotte and not in Atlanta where all our maintenance is. So, um, I get another call back on my phone from that first line check airman and he goes yeah I, I just talked with a friend of mine another line check airman showed him those pictures that you sent me and yeah he said i don't know i've never seen that before something's not right it's like a different it's like a database for another airplane 
which I don't know how hmm. it's even possible so it's like a to load mode or something. Yeah, yeah. There are like places normally, you know, we put in the captain's employee number, the first officer's employee number, but then they had like two more lines uh, for the second captain, the second first officer, and then a line check airman line. It's like, what is this? I've never seen this before. And then on the other side, um, I'm thinking, well, I don't remember ever seeing something about specifying the units for the fuel and, whether it's Jet A or A1 or whatever, you know, different types of jet It's almost fuel. like a blank form instead of the yeah. pre-populated stuff that it's supposed to have. Right. So, yeah, he calls back and goes, yeah, this guy says, uh, yeah, both of us agree uh, we would not take the airplane. I would refuse to fly the airplane. And so that's what we did. We finally talked to our dispatcher and finally, con- you know, con- um, convinced our dispatcher and maintenance that, Something is just not right, and we're not going to fly it anymore. And so they got us a new airplane. A little bit late arriving in Charlotte. Not bad, but um, yeah. So that was my unusual experience. Um, with- uh, it's never good when you're not 100% confident with the airplane, is it, Jeff? Because you're still on a learning curve, mm-hmm. uh, and it must be very hard to know, is this absolutely right, or am I just forgetting what I've just learned in the classroom? Because right. it's all new. Um, so, uh, and then when you're matched yeah. with somebody else that has that same very yes. limited experience, you're going like, <laughs> yes. I don't know. Does this look right? No, that doesn't look right. No. That doesn't seem like. And then when we finally got the new airplane, we're going, oh, yes, this is exactly what we remember seeing in training. And everything looks normal. and everything. Yeah, so I love it. So clearly the right decision. Oh, yeah. 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 It's just... Uh, you know, my my instinct is to kind of move the mission, move those flights. If you have passengers, they're expecting to get from here to there, and, you know, they bought the ticket, and they want to be there on time and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, well, I, I did my job, you know, going down to Sarasota and back, but uh, just thinking that's probably a, enough exposure to <laughs> liability for at this point. So I'm just going to go ahead and say, nope, not I see a report from my days many years ago when I used to fly airplanes. That one of the first things we used to do many years was, ago. Yes, go on to the uh, the very first page of our McDo and check the software load uh, and the aircraft mm-hmm. is, it thinks it is and the engine type it thinks it is and confirm that they were all correct. And that was all this. That was all correct. That was, was the weird thing. It was all matching. Oh, well, and that, our, no, I just don't understand. <laughs> the mechanics were there and they were looking at. It, they had a laptop computer and they were looking at all kinds of numbers and they said everything, hardware, software, everything is matched. And they're thinking, um, we're thinking, well, maybe when they were like reloading the database, when they were trying to troubleshoot this ACARS problem, something happened. It got, um, uh, what's the term? Um, corrupted. Yeah, corrupted, uh, perhaps. I don't know. I was going to say something else, but then I thought corrupted <laughs> was probably the best word. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of censoring going on in this uh, show uh, to come here. You'll see, but it's worth it. Um, so we don't need any more than, you know, the. And it's necessary. Anyway, so that was, was my foobar. Yeah, no? yes, okay. foobar is a good word for it. That's an actual fix on um, one of is the arrivals really? in New York. Yeah, <laughs> cross foobar at ten thousand and two hundred and fifty knots. Okay, enough of me. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, good trip and great first officer and yeah. So. Nothing really else to say. I'm off. Uh, I'm on vacation starting 
Tuesday of next week. So, um, oh, you can't take oh, a vacation you. yet, Jeff. You'll forget everything. You'll well, that's true. <laughs> I, I have to. Well, what are you going to do? I'm not sure how I could do any worse, actually. See, now I was supposed to have a vacation day the Friday after Thanksgiving. And they said, well, we really need someone to be available. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. I was like, yeah, really? Like, are you going in? Do you have, are you going to be out of town? Are you going to be here? I was like, uh, I don't want to say. Like, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. No, it ended up with me agreeing to at least be available for the morning. So we shall see. On Thanksgiving? Friday. Oh, Friday. No, okay. Friday. Thanksgiving is actually which day? Thursday. Thursday. Thursday, okay. It's always on a Thursday. All right. Oh, and um, I know many of you listening to our show um, are fans of Formula One, and Nick and I are as well. And uh, that was a great race last oh wasn't uh, it just weekend. fantastic and uh loved it hamilton won his seventh uh driver's championship so yeah it's pretty cool uh it was amazing because there were people skidding and sliding around and drivers you know smashing their cars up it was really quite remarkable mm-hmm. and uh hamilton went around and he won that race with the biggest margin over uh any other race that he's uh, won this year uh, on in the most atrocious conditions, really driving conditions, and it just had nothing to do with the the power of the car or anything, because no one could use uh, full power uh, on this circuit. It was just so slippery. It was all down to do with driving skills. So I just have to take my hat off to. And he's a master with uh, tire management. And if you looked at his, uh, they, what do they call it? intermediates, uh, which yeah. kind of like a, something between a, a wet tire that has the, the big giant treads and a slick that has no tread or well, no. Yeah, I guess that's the yeah. right term. Um, but Correct. his tires at the end of it look like they were uh, most of the tires look like they were slicks. That's how. Yeah how hard he drove those tires and uh, yeah, they were desperate day. for him to come in and, and get a, have a tire change and he said no i, I can make it through so yeah. well, good judgment great judgment yeah great great race so congratulations uh hamilton i know he listens to the show <laughs> he's a great fan he's <laughs> a huge fan of the show huge i fan. happen to know huge yes. fan. absolutely all right and uh that's all i have so Let's keep on moving and uh, talk about the Coffee Fund, which is your way to support our show financially. Sorry, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. That's Jeff Smith in Nashville, Tennessee, who does the uh, Airline Pilot Guy theme song and also the ABG Java Jive for our coffee fund. And since the last show, using the coffee fund classic method, we have listeners Gregory Peterson up in Lexington, Ken Berry, Chris Randall, and David Lieb. They utilize the Coffee Fund Classic method of the Coffee Fund, which is basically PayPal. You can do a one-time or recurring donation using that uh, version of the uh, Coffee Fund. You can also become a patron of the show. Most of our contributions come from Patreon, or our patrons at Patreon. And um, 
since the last show, we don't have any new patrons, but that's okay. We already have a bunch of great patrons out there supporting us financially. So thank you very much, all of you, for your wonderful, generous contributions. And if you're interested in joining this great group of folks, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. Captain, incoming message. All right, let's start off with the first item in our feedback folder. Uh, I'm trying to pull that up myself. Here we go. Uh, oh, you know, last episode, we, we uh, read out this uh, feedback from Chopper Mike, and then we were going, I think there was supposed to be something included in this feedback, but it just didn't make it. So um, we uh, sent him a notice that said, were you supposed to include some kind of an attachment? And he sent us this. He says, so it turns out that my video not going through is 100% operator error. I sincerely apologize to the wonderful production staff and to all the chopper jockeys out there listening. We are a cantankerous cohort that demands human sacrifice in the event of failure, and I have shamed them horribly with my on-air foul-up. Here's a G-Drive link. Hopefully it works. It did. It worked. So Google Drive came through. So Saved from the human sacrifice. Yeah, uh, I don't think that uh, demands. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't. Maybe just one of his children, but not him. So that's okay. Those chopper drivers probably wouldn't have found him anyway. They usually get lost. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> All right. Um, this is about a actually the um, the time limit. Video feedback. This is my first one. Uh, it was in regard. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was an intro. <laughs> a little tease. <laughs> <laughs> the time limit on and there's probably a little bit of a, a lag some latency uh with our control room up in toronto um for sure because there we're, we're experiencing technical difficulties today with our control room and our producer director um excuse me a little little touch of COVID, i think <clears throat> anyway um the the video playing capability of uh, Streamyard. the limit is five minutes and mike sent in five minutes and eight seconds <laughs> now he didn't know what the limitation was uh so i had to kind of trim out a little bit from the beginning and a couple little places here and there just to kind of trim it down so that it was under the five minute mark so um anyway without further ado let's hear from chopper mike video feedback this is my first one uh it was in regards to episode 442 and obviously i'm not on top of a fixed wing aircraft i'm on top of a helicopter but as you guys were explaining some stuff wanted to point out a couple of similarities and use a large visual representation of what I'm trying to correlate to. So you're talking about P-factor and how you get increased laminar flow over the uh, top side of the wing as the right engine rotates clockwise. Uh, And we have something that's kind of similar to that. So we don't really call it P-factor because it's not a prop, it's a rotor, but uh, we have dissymmetry of lift, right? So Uh, On the right side of the helicopter, in this case on this UH-60, when we're flying forward, uh, we have the advancing blade. And as the advancing blade is going through the air, it has increased laminar flow over the rotor, over the rotor blade, and thus creates more lift versus the retreating blade, which has to do extra work 
as it goes back to create that kind of lift. Now, the way that we compensate for it on this helicopter is with this fancy little doodad right over here. This is a spindle, and uh, it allows, when you come around onto this side over here, it allows this retreating blade to flap up, and that gives an increased angle of attack, making extra lift. And the same can be said on this side, where the spindle will flap down, and the angle of attack gets reduced on the advancing blade. This is also compensated by the pilot where he uses the cyclic stick to tilt the rotor forward to reduce the angle of attack on the advancing blade and to increase the angle of attack on the retreating blade. Um, so then I got to wondering and thinking about uh, like the variable pitch prop geometries and things like that and uh, their mechanical inner workings and uh, I got to thinking about this guy right here. So this is our swash plate. And basically, if you look at this and then you think about like a giant cone coming over the top of it, it looks very similar to a pitch control driven variable pitch geometry uh, nose gear for your propeller. Um, the only difference is instead of only the sleeve, which is that one right there, we also have this fancy little guy down here, which is we call it a uniball but it allows for this swash plate to change angles uh, instead of just moving up and down only, which is something that a, a variable pitch prop does from what I have seen. So I was curious if, uh, if that's even available to change the angle of attack on your uh, left side blade if you're looking at, at a propeller to compensate for that uh, dissymmetry, if you will, for that uh, offset P-factor. Um, I don't know, let's see. I'm looking forward to hearing some rickets for that. And on a side note, uh, Dr. Steph was talking about gyroscopic precession and then didn't want to continue to talk about it because uh, it's a very odd concept, but it's something that we deal with rather regularly. Uh, and if we go back to that swash plate, we have, uh, some pitch change links right here and that inputs uh, the different types of movements that we want the whole rotor disc to change so over there we have the forward over there we have the lateral and over here we have the aft so you'll notice that they are offset as the forward is pointed over to like the two o'clock position of the helicopter instead of straight ahead the lateral is pointed at the 10 o'clock instead of like over here to the side and the aft is pointed over that way instead of back there. So uh, that's what gyroscopic procession looks like in a helicopter. In order for me to make an input into the rotor system that takes effect on the front end of the rotor, I have to make the input here. So when I make that input here, it's gonna sweep its way and take effect over here. So that's the whole, a force input on a gyroscope uh, takes place 90, 90 degrees after the input takes place. Now, the other part of that is, well, why is it at the 45 degree angle? Well, that's a flat plane surface putting a rotational input into this rotor. So we put it at the middle because the moment of rotation starts here and then ends there, but the maximum moment is right there. I don't know, uh, maybe there's an engineer that can tell me how much of an idiot I am. Uh, and maybe I'm not wrong, I don't know, we'll see. 
I don't. That all sounded good to me. Sounded really like. good. <laughs> he uh, couldn't understand a word he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> he did ask us to play some rickets there. Yeah. So there you go. Thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> well, I don't have an answer to the question that he asked about whether that's something that's applicable from. Uh, come on, Steph. You're the only prop pilot the here. I don't. I know, but I actually don't know the answer. Just to make that. something up. No. Nobody will know. Sorry. <laughs> Certainly not, not a to my pilot. knowledge, but <laughs> it's not something I've ever been, you know, um, aware of or taught. But I don't know. That was cool about the gyroscop, gyroscop, nah, gyroscopic, gyroscopic precession. Pre where you know the input has to be ninety degrees for the for it to take. Uh, whatever. You can yeah. see why. I like yeah, I don't do do well. of where you put the input in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that swash paint mm-hmm. looked a bit buckled. So was it? Uh, um, I see where you're going. <laughs> swashbuckler? <laughs> yeah, it was a swashbuckling plate. <laughs> oh, that's bad. It was, rather. All right. Yeah, Actually. but you can see why I hate helicopters. I mean, all that garbage spinning around at thousands of revs a minute, that's all that's garbage. holding you airborne? You've got to be kidding me. It's amazing. Really, it is. All right. Well, thank you, Mike, uh, for sending that in. That was uh, good stuff. Yeah, good work. neat-looking yeah. uh, helicopter, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very neat. Um, yeah, big very thing. Great information that. and nice to have all that visual um, representation of what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and was that audio stereo? Because every time he spanned the camera mm-hmm. under his phone, I guess. Uh, Probably so. It because was the spinning in my ears. Very it clever. Mm-hmm. StreamYard uh, is uh, supporting stereo audio now, so. It probably wow. was. <laughs> We've got to the stereo age. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was say just real quick, I boxes agrees he's not aware of any swash plates in prop planes. Hmm. So, not not oh, to my dear. knowledge. Not no no swashbuckling going on. Prop no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Good. Oh, Good arr, to know. Arr. Just just those chopper pilots. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Again, thanks, uh, Chopper Mike, for that. And let's move on to this one from Texas and Lashock. I recently saw that the last Airbus A380 has emerged from the assembly line, which now stands vacant. Uh, This comes to an end uh, of a rather short era in aviation history, though the planes themselves will hopefully be flying for years to come. And then he sends us a link to an article from CNN. I've been expecting this day for a while now, ever since I was looking up orders one day well after this, and the 747-8 had been launched. That, between the two of them, that they totaled up to less than 500 airframes. Even now, between it and the 747-800, they've gotten just over 400 built. In contrast, the A350 already has more than 300, and the 787 has almost 1,000. There just isn't the demand for these huge aircraft anymore. Makes me think of a video from Mustard, the YouTube channel I've mentioned a few times, about the Saunders Row Princess, a large flying boat, which were themselves the largest planes until the 747 came along, and that they, they, that they designed and produced in the years after World War II. While flying boats had been the aircraft of choice for many in the pre-war years, post-war things had changed. Aircraft had gotten more reliable, new jet engines were being developed, and there were now many landing strips at cities around the world. Despite designing and building a quite impressive aircraft, the market for it had shifted and no one wanted it anymore. The A380 has uh, been more successful, of course, but I still can't help seeing shades of this here. Anyway, as always, looking forward to next time. Wishing you clear 
clear blue skies. This is the Texas Anla Shock signing off. And uh, he uh, always includes a random aviation quote. This is the captain. We have a little problem with our entry sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence. And then, that's my explosion. Uh, uh, that was uh, Captain Malcolm Reynolds from Serenity. The, uh, yes, a Firefly class uh, mm -hmm. spaceship. Anyway, famous very, last very words, good. right? <laughs> no, actually, they survived that one. Oh, they did? Okay. Yeah, very, very good series. Loved the Firefly. Nice. All right. We'll include the link to this article from CNN in the show notes about the last ever Airbus A380 Super Jumble. Jumble. Super Jumbo assembled. That's a combination They'll of... They'll be super jumbled at some point. Simple jumbled. Super jumbled in France. <laughs> yeah, you figure it out. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've been waiting for this one. This is a good one. So, um, Captain Nick has been contributing... Uh, much <laughs> yes. to our show uh, this one to our feedback segment and uh, don't don't play it yet Liz uh, because as soon as you do our microphones are going to get muted because there is audio with us um, this is from where did you find this Nick in Facebook uh, I found it on, Facebook. Like on Facebook yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's from somebody named Aussie man Aussie man reviews and uh, so it, it deals with it's it's aviation related it's an airport in russia and let's hear uh the the narrative uh, uh from this go ahead hit it welcome back to russia we've had a look at houses last month now let's look at airports as we can see this one is quite a hoot we're not inside yet but we will be in a minute i'm gonna say the wanker in the car is stressed out maybe his luggage has gone missing which is frustrating i've had it happen to me before so if that's the case here i can sympathize to a degree he really 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 wants his bag back with all his he was gonna go home he was gonna let it go and sleep on it and give the airline time but he thought it, someone knows something. There must be a manager that has a theory as to how a whole bloody bag ends up vanishing. Tell me the theory. This guy in the blue suit can see the car coming. He opens the door. That's nice. He's helping out. I'm sure the car will fit without causing any damage. No, he shuts the door. He wants to stop the car. The angry passenger screams, you dickheads will never stop me. Not until I get my bag back and a free upgrade to business class on the next flight. I'm going to go talk to the information desk. Honky honk, beep beep beep, get out of the way. Oh, hey, can you please look into... Oh, wrong airline. Don't worry, just ignore me. Ignore me, everyone. He seems to be swerving more and more. I think he's on the phone as well. It's extremely dangerous being on your phone and driving. I don't know if I can support this fella anymore. He's like, yeah, hi, Mum. The flight was great. I'm just looking for my bag. Yeah, the airline lost it. I went to the right carousel. I did. I stood at the belt for an hour. Eventually, it was the same three bags going round and round. I guess those bags filled out a form to report their owners missing. I don't know. But yeah, I had to fill out a form to report my bag missing. They said, leave it with us. I went out to my car. I thought, f*** this. No, no, mum. You know, I'm not leaving it with them. I already left it with them once. Where the f*** did it go? Hang on. Ugh. So now I'm driving around inside the airport. Yeah, yeah, inside. It's like the Blues Brothers. There are so many people chasing me. Sorry, Ma, what's in the bag? Important My favourite jacket, the anti-diarrhea pills you got me, my glasses. I can't see without them. I'm blind as a bat. Oh, and I got you a heap of pirated DVDs. 
Movies that haven't come out yet. So we want that. I want it to be a surprise. Okay, I'm back in the terminal I arrived in. Look out, dickheads. I'm reversing. Look out. I want to see if my plane is still out there. If the pilot unlocks it, I can check it myself. Do a thorough job. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Hold on a tick, mum. Hold on. Ah, this isn't the runway. This is a regular exit. Oi, mum, I might have to go. I'm a bit lost and talking on the phone while driving is not good. But I'll be home soon. I promise I won't do anything dumb. All right. All right. What? The pirated DVDs were in the bag. Yeah. Mission Impossible 9, Avengers 83, a bunch of things with the rock in them. Hey, I can't hear you over all the angry Russian guys yelling. I gotta go. See ya, see ya, see ya. Right. Okay. I suppose he's decided to go home and wait for the airline to call him. Smart move. It results in less jail time. <laughs> you have to watch the video. I wonder why the floor in the it's terminal so is so slippery. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what is going on? And it was very low speed, like driving through the terminal. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love the way the movie is put together in the last frame is him like disappearing into the distance, having spent the last 10 minutes careering around the inside of this terminal. <laughs> I wonder what the real story is with this guy. Um, you know, you know, the, toward the very end, did you see that big, like four by four piece of lumber that they were, I think they like hit him in the head with it. <laughs> I don't know how he continued to drive off after that. Uh, yeah. And he's a Russian, ch- you know, that, that's probably <laughs> just a scratch. Tough people. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's amazing. I find it just incredible because in most airports, there are like lots of armed people. And I think in most airports, he would have been uh, a bloody mess full of bullet holes. Um, but yeah, exactly. he, they seem to be <laughs> treating him with an amazing amount of patience. Very, uh, they were very, rest- very restrained. I was thinking the yeah. same thing. I, uh, if this had happened in the U.S., I'm sure that that guy would have had several bullet holes in his head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. Uh, hall Boxes uh, makes a good point. Is this where the Van Eyes driver got his inspiration from? <laughs> several recent week. incidences and i and i love uh aussie man's uh commentary he's a oh, very yeah. funny bloke very very funny i'll have to listen to more of his stuff so we'll have a link to his um channel i guess he has a channel or, I think he has a youtube page as well as- youtube page uh, aussie is his website where i'm sure that you'll be able to find all the different places that he has his stuff very good that's i love that kind of humor very very funny All right. And speaking of funny humor, we have one of our APG community members at large, uh, Dana. Actually, it's not really that funny, but uh, he does uh, continue on with his uh, training audio series on the 737. And uh, today is the fifth installment, and he talks about his uh, simulator check ride. So here we go. Take it away, Dana. Well, hello there, APG community, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Rick, and Dr. Steph. This is Dana, and I'm reporting back to you with my day of check right here, and wanted to give you guys an update as to how things went on the actual check ride. I kind of alluded to it earlier as to uh, how it went, and it indeed, it went pretty darn well for me. Um, 
The check ride itself was held at Charlotte International Airport, which is Charlotte Douglas International Airport, and we specifically used Runway 36 Center for the entire day for all of our maneuvers. Uh, you know, and, and that's the thing is the maneuvers validation is, and if I'm all over the place as to what I'm saying and talking about, nothing in a maneuvers validation is is really standard other than the qual standards that you're held to. Uh, they basically are taking snaps, and, and when they say snap, it means that it's a picture of time where the airplane is configured in a certain configuration in space, and then they put you back to that. So you have to think that this is not a normal flight. That will be a later uh, uh, episode I talk about. Uh, it's a uh, it's uh, just all over the place. So if this is a little bit over the all over the place, that's because specifically how the program is designed. Uh, anyways, uh, taking a look at what uh, the day went. Uh, first uh, first flight of the day was uh, right off uh, started off at Normway Three Six Center on a Cavu day, and a really nice day to uh, just take off. And they want to see that you just know how to fly the airplane, do a normal takeoff, do a normal climb do a normal churn to a level off. Um, so it was, it was pretty pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Uh, then they dropped the weather down in, in uh, Charlotte and, and did the uh, the 3-6 center localizer only. It's really the ILS with glide slope out. Now on this aircraft, it's really a very, uh, very easy airplane on any non-precision approach that doesn't have a type of churn. And when I say non-precision approach or the churn, let's think of uh, DCA. Of course, you have a non-precision approach that has a churn in that brings you in on the VNAV per se uh, into the runway, runway, you know, doing the river visual if you're in the instrument conditions. Uh, there's another one in San Francisco. So anything that has a bend in the course, uh, you cannot use this function, but it's a wonderful function. Uh, and that is, it's only available actually on the 737, as far as I know, uh, at Acme. It certainly was not on the MD-88 or the 90. Uh, it's called an IAN. Now, the IAN is Integrated Approach Navigation. I think that's, let me go back to it. Um, I love all these acronyms. Um, and I know what IAN is, just, yeah, uh, that's exactly what it is, Integrated Approach Navigation. So what it is is basically the uh, the computer, the FMS, has the ability to create a artificial glide slope using DME uh, and PATH uh, associated with, the, you know, using GPS as well. So it's really creating an artificial glide slope. So you don't have a glide slope per se, as an ILS would, but it has a glide slope that'll take you right down to a, a, a much uh, better result instead of try, trying to do the old dive and drive. When I say the dive and drive is, you know, diving, you know, and leveling off and diving and then going to the minimums. Anyways, um, so that was my second procedure. We basically came around with a normal profile, and uh, you always have to land out of a non-precision approach. It was right down to minimums, so I broke out right at minimums, and I, I can't re exactly remember what they were. But no later than 50 feet below MDA, you have to click the autopilot off, auto throttles off, go ahead and bring the airplane in and land it successfully. So uh, that was uh, pretty pretty easy for me. Um, you know, they've done that hundreds of times over and over throughout all my uh, training. And then, 
came back around, and this is this is where he took a snapshot. We were on the downwind, and one of the uh, most difficult things an airline pilot has to do is try to do a visual approach. Yes, that is one of the more difficult procedures that we ever, or approaches that we ever fly, uh, because there's a lot of variables there that bring you into complacency, and uh, you can actually end up very unstabilized in a lot of these situations, because you're not necessarily looking at you know, the instrumentation and or um, backing it up with, with proper approach procedures underlying the visual procedure. So we do train to that proficiency. So I had to do a visual approach doing a three-to-one. Um, and also on the 737, there is a, a vertical path the indicator that that's in the FMS. So it'll give you a, a relative bearing to the runway and what your r relative uh, path is. So if you're on a three-to-one, it'll be 3.0 or four-to-one, 4.0, et cetera, et cetera. And you want to try to keep that right around 3.0. 3.0, which is always where you want to be. So I came around on the visual approach. Um, in this case, uh, when I came down and said flaps to, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was flaps to 10. Um, my flaps were stuck at five. So, well, that's an abnormal situation. We can land the 737 in three different flap configurations, and that is flaps 15, flaps 30, and flaps 40, but flap 5 is not authorized as a normal procedure. So we had to do the missed approach. Um, pretty easy there. Uh, it's just uh, at that point, I didn't do a full missed approach. I just went ahead and just vertical speed, told the tower we're going to go come back around. After we run a few procedures, we ran the procedures and landed with a flaps Flaps 5 landing. Well, just ironically, 3-6 center in Charlotte is pre-planned that way. It's the longest con uh, commensurate runway that uh, you would want to choose on the approach uh, with a uh, flap malfunction, which, your, of course, your air speeds are going to be higher because you don't have nearly as much flaps out. So uh, I just come down, land the airplane, uh, prove that you can land the aircraft with the flaps in a much uh, lower setting in an abnormal situation. And, you know, the big thing is recognizing uh, you, that you do the right checklist. Uh, a little bit different on this aircraft because it has uh, uh, leading edge light and uh, it's just a green light in the flaps. Okay, so the, the leading edge would be green and the flaps would would not be where it's commanded, whereas an 88 uh you had the uh, the uh, mid, full, and uh, oh my God, I'm, I'm already forgetting. Can you believe that? That's what happens when you learn a new airplane. Uh, you get three positions on the 88, and I can't remember them right now. Uh, mid and full, I know two of them, and I think the other one's up. Uh, or, no, takeoff. That's it. My God, can you believe I can't remember that? It's takeoff, yeah. Ta takeoff, mid and full. So anyways, uh, it would be really kind of tell you where you were in your abnormal situation, whereas on the 7.3, it's not as, it's kind of insidious. Um, all right, so what else did we do? I'm trying to remember. So I came around uh, and did that mist and came back and, uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, well, I already did my non-precision, so we had to do our, our uh uh, our certifications for uh, low vis, so we did uh, the Cat uh, Cat Three Auto Land um, to uh, very low minimums, right to minimums actually. Uh, Captain, which was a seat filler, uh, did the landing. I just had to make sure I had made my callouts on this airplane uh, actually much easier. Um, 
Then what else? We, oh, yeah. So we had to do our uh, came back around. Remember one of those snapshots? Uh, we had to do our wind shear escape maneuvers, both on approach and uh, after takeoff. So as you can imagine, we just uh, did the snap to um, snap to the uh, final approach course that we had already had uh, been on and just said wind shear advisories in effect. You clear the land, 3-6 center, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so we did the wind shear recovery. This airplane, one of the nice things I do like about it is wind shear, really not a big deal. You know, obviously the biggest deal is hitting the ground. We, we don't have to, uh, we, we don't want to end up with that result. But one of the really nice things about this aircraft is you can put that fire, that, that power right up to the firewall, uh, slam the, 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 thr the thrust levers all the way forward, and the engines are going to take care of themselves. So the electronic system on those engines prevents the engines from overspeeding. So even if you do fly through wind shear, it's not a requirement to come back and land because guess what? You have not exceeded any limitations. Whereas with the uh, Mad Dog 88 and the 90, you had the, uh, both had the opportunity to go through. Uh, well, uh, Mad Dog 88 was right up to the uh, firewall, um, and you overboost the engines. 90, you'd have to go through the gate. But uh, that is a nice feature of the 737. Um, so both of those were pretty much uh, um, mundane. I mean, flew through them, had no issues, never lost control of the aircraft, uh, went up to the PLI uh, pitch limit indicator, um, and just held it right there to, to fly out of the uh, wind shear escape maneuvers. Uh, engine V1 cut. Yeah, good old V1 cuts. This airplane I thought would be a lot worse than it is because the engine nacelles are out there on the wings, whereas more a center line thrust on, on the Mad Dog. Well, on the 7.3, actually, that really big tail back there, uh, as long as, I mentioned it earlier in, in the previous recording, as long as you kind of use the friction of the runway to keep you going down the center line uh, and get yourself situated and pull the airplane off the ground, really not a big deal. Um, so we did the engine V1 cut. And it was, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I flew it as well as you can ever imagine uh, anybody flying. It just felt really comfortable. This aircraft does, uh, in the simulator at least, uh, fly very nicely. Then we had uh, some approaching uh, with, with some gusty winds again. Um, I think, well, that actually tied into the, uh, tied in with the, the wind shear. Um, and that was really... Oh, uh, yeah, so in, in there, I forgot I had a low a low approach, so it wasn't an actual full, it was a full go-around. We were in action landing configuration, just about touchdown, and that's a lot different than if you're in a um, in a, a go-around scenario at a higher altitude. I kind of touched upon that earlier, and that was uh, uh, when I had the flat uh, malfunction. I was at a higher altitude, and all I did was vertical speed, whereas if I'm down uh, low to the ground, you, you're going to hit toga. And it's a chance when you do a, a low-power go-around, when you're really close to the ground, uh, that you may actually contact the runway. But the important thing is to uh, do your go-around procedure. Uh, and you know, I'm not going to pick on myself as far as what happened, what I didn't do right, um, because really it, 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 was, it was just... Uh, Fundamentally, it flew the airplane very well. It was just a matter of missed a couple call-outs. And uh, I had no redos in this. So if the instructor says, let me have the simulator and let's redo something, uh, that generally is not a good scenario. 
The wonderful thing about AQP, Advanced Qualification Program, is that if you do not pass one portion of it, as long as it's not multiple portions of the check ride, then you, know, you can be retrained. Well, today, I didn't need that. It was a good day. On that note, looks like I'm approaching about 13 minutes. I'm going to go ahead and cut myself off and say, Jeff, I'm going to send it back to you in the studio. I'll talk to you, everybody, soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for the throw. Nice, nice throw. Uh, good stuff. Great job there, uh, excuse me, Dana, in the uh, simulator. Very, very, very similar to the uh, maneuvers and sequences and that sort of thing that we did on the the other Boeing that I fly. Probably the most famous mm -hmm. Boeing, the 717. The mini dog. The mini dog, yeah. <laughs> the With the, the most famous? Yeah, well, in my mind. I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. I don't even really think of it as a Boeing because it's not. <laughs> I'm glad that you're very familiar now with Charlotte's 36 Center. So, yeah. you know, anytime you're in town, let me know. There you go. All right. Always good to hear from Dana. And uh, let's see. Let's keep moving this thing on. Um, let's look at number four uh, from Glaucus. If uh, you want to play that uh, or show that um, overlay, Liz. Uh, he says, have any of you ever been in a position you thought you were cutting too close on a takeoff? If so, what did you do? Cheers, Glaucus or G-Man. He likes to call himself, and uh, we're looking at a, a photo of an airplane, a four-engine airplane. I really can't tell what is it. it is. Is it a 7.6 or what? Or maybe an Airbus? I don't know. What do you maybe think? Maybe it's the, the Russian, Russian version of the 340. Oh, it could um, be. The 340 ski? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 340 ski. <laughs> um, and it's using, as we like to say, every brick of the runway, literally. <laughs> the, the, you can't quite see the uh, caption because of the banner that's there, but it says below, it says, we paid whole runway, we use whole runway. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you can't see it because of that uh, <laughs> scroller there. Um, yeah, uh, you're right, Glenn. Uh, my background now, if uh, you're watching the video, is an L-1011 cockpit. Um, I oh, might point out, there we uh, go. actually, that uh, aircraft are... Only required on a wet runway to reach 15 feet by the end of the runway. The fence height, uh, 35 feet 35, on a dry yeah. runway. So mm -hmm. um, he's not doing badly. He's only about 50 feet short if the <laughs> runway were wet. Would not say <laughs> that he's this at 15. a little short. Yeah. And a little concerning that this runway seems to end in water. And um, speaking of fences, uh, there is one. In, there is a fence there. I'm thinking, how yes. did he avoid hitting that thing? Probably. That's, I think that's why they call it fence height. But uh, it, it does remind me of a departure out of uh, Hong Kong in the old A340, uh, the first versions we got with the small engines, the 340, uh, 300, the, the C2 engines. Uh, we uh, were weight limited out of Hong Kong uh, frequently because we were, you know, accepting a tailwind. Mm -hmm. um, but we had to calculate the aircraft's performance uh, down to the last knot and the last degree of temperature. And uh, I was sitting on the jump seat because I was only a first officer on this departure. And we're uh, departing on the runway, heads off out of the harbour. So you're departing into a big black hole effectively because there's only water off the end of the runway literally mm -hmm. and uh as we rolled off the end of the runway uh 
and you know the aircraft sort of because it's so hot and humid there's hardly any climb i was watching the radar and it had i don't know 10 feet as we were over the water as we were starting to gently climb i mean he climbed away and we got away fine but i was thinking wow that was close and we were at absolutely max chat you know we were at the engines firewalled so all the way down the runway (laughs) (laughs) hey if you're if you're watching the video um you'll notice uh it looks like um flash flashes going off like uh some kind of a photo shoot and uh Nick and my, at least that what I'm, that's what I'm seeing. My, my video and Nick's pose. I think it's because we're, uh, we're being featured in a uh, podcasting, some of the best podcasts in the world, um, magazine. And, uh, they're, they're, uh, hey, taking pictures let me, uh, of pose. There we go. Yeah. Very <laughs> good one. I have no I'm idea. I'm trying to ignore them. <laughs> I don't know why that thing's flashing. They're not taking my picture today because I didn't do my hair and makeup because I was working in the uh, in the uh, surgery center all afternoon. And I was, you know, my apparently stuff didn't let them into her house because I don't see any flashes that's, going off. That's, where she is. that's true. I told them to get lost. Do it some other time when I yeah. Can get she was too busy with Life magazine. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Do we have time? Yeah, we'll squeeze this one in. That's what she said. Um, Sean says, what happens in the tower stays in the tower. He says, somehow, I don't think a NASA report will save these guys, but sadly, I can see the union doing it. No excuse for what happened here. And then he gives us a link to an article from the Idaho Statesman. And the headline is, one Boise air traffic controller dozed, another reeked of pot. The FAA sat on emails. Um, over 300 emails regarding two FAA air traffic controllers leaving the Boise airport tower unattended in 2016 have been released. Here's a report of what happened and what didn't. This is from Darren Oswald. One night, four years ago, the lone air traffic controller on duty on an overnight shift at the Boise airport fell asleep. A second controller had left earlier only to return to the tower reeking of marijuana smoke. Uh, An Air St. Luke's helicopter pilot seeking to land at the airport and a second pilot trying to take off tried for more than five minutes to contact an air traffic controller. The pilots finally received permission from an airport grounds operation officer. Today, the Federal Aviation Administration has still not fully explained what led to the breakdown that night in air traffic control, a key part of the nation's aviation safety system. Nor has it said what happened to the two controllers. The Idaho statesman has been able to piece together some of what took place in those early morning hours of Saturday, November 19th, 2016, from staffing logs and 313 emails the FAA released to the statesman. They were released on October 14, 46 months after the newspaper filed a Freedom of Information Act request. Wow, not very quick response. The records are from FAA officials who looked into the incident. The Boise Airport, operated by the city of Boise, never received an official report on the incident, although it was or though it was the city officers' intervention that enabled the helicopters to land. Um. Anyway, uh, two controllers began their shifts at 10:30 p.m. on Friday, November 18. One handled traffic in and out of the airport. The second one was assigned to flights arriving and leaving from Bozeman, Montana. That time of night is fairly quiet, with only a few commercial flights between 10.30 p.m. and midnight. A schedule from November 18, 2016 shows seven flights scheduled to arrive between 10.38 and 12.28. 
The next flight wasn't scheduled to arrive until 7.52 in the morning. Only one departure was scheduled before midnight at 11.03. The next one wasn't scheduled to depart until 5.30 in the morning. At Bozeman, there were two commercial arrivals scheduled and no departures between 10.30 and 12.15. The FAA emails explained that the controller handling the Bozeman traffic was allowed a break after the Bozeman Air Traffic Control Station shut down at 12.15 a.m., a memo written after the incident says, quote, breaks should be of a reasonable duration, but did not specify how long reasonable was. It also said that at no time should one controller be left to work alone for an extended period. However, under FAA rules, the controller was required to ask for permission from the other controller to leave the building. He was not asked, nor did he approve the absence of the second controller who left. According to Holly DeLay, the FAA tower manager, uh, beginning at about 1.30 a.m., Bruce Gard, an airport operations officer, drove across the airport's taxiways and runways checking for burned-out lights. He was initially able to speak to the lone controller in the tower, who gave him permission to enter those restricted areas. His last communication with the controller was at 2.14 a.m. At 2.31, as Gard proceeded to another location, he could not reach the tower on either a ground operations frequency or a tower frequency. Meanwhile, the Air St. Luke's pilot coming from the downtown Boise Hospital asked for permission to land, but received no response. An Air St. Luke's pilot leaving for Twin Falls could not reach the tower either. Guard tried to call the tower three times on his phone. He had another airport operations employee called by phone and radio, but that person was not able to raise anyone. Guard pointed his pickup at the tower and flashed his lights, which he described as extremely bright. Again, no response. He then asked the operations employee to use an emergency line to contact the tower. That failed, too. Guard asked the employee to notify ADA County Emergency Dispatchers, or ADA, I guess, ADA County Emergency Dispatchers to send police and fire units to the tower. He thought there may have been a medical emergency. Uh, Meanwhile, (laughs) the uh, city employee guard gave the pilots permission to land and depart. Was he a qualified air traffic controller? I don't think so. Anyway, it goes on. Um, much more information about this whole thing. Uh, one of the things they talked about was that um, the uh, uh, controller that had left the airport and had gone home um, kind of smelled of uh, marijuana smoke. And uh, when he got there, he, he went for the refrigerator and just pulled out a pizza and and a, and a Coke and started drinking. kind of hungry. Yeah. <laughs> like, Even though he'd just been at home for dinner? <laughs> Yeah, he's okay. had the munchies for some reason. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> interesting story. Um, it, it, we, we covered it, didn't we? I seem to recall. Oh. We covered this story before. I don't remember. There have been a couple so, of, yeah, yeah, a couple of similar uh, ones. What, what I find people. interesting is that the FAA seemed to be kind of trying to ignore it and pretend it didn't hasn't happened or didn't happen. Nothing and to see here. They've yeah, been very to reluctant here. to release any information about what they did about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's I kind of sketchy. That, yeah, very. Yeah. What are they? What are they trying to hide? What are they trying to hide? Anyway. Well, <laughs> not sure, but we'll have the whole story and the article in the show notes. So thanks, Sean, for sending that in. And you know what? This would be a perfect time, I think, for this week's installment of the old pilot's plane tales, and this week's episode. You couldn't give these away either. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales 
You couldn't give these away either. Having recently talked about a couple of embarrassingly awful US World War II aircraft, it wouldn't be fair if I didn't mention some from my side of the Atlantic that were knocked together in the jolly old British Isles. Sadly, there are way too many to cover, so I'll just take a deep breath and mention a few. A while ago, I visited an Air Force friend who had at one time sat behind me in an F4 Phantom. And he went on to many greater achievements than I did, but after retirement he moved down to a lovely old house in a village not far from me. Whilst we were catching up on old times in his lovely garden, I noticed a quirky old summer house, and, taking a closer look, my eyes fell on the manufacturer's plate attached to the cast iron frame. Bolton and Paul of Norwich. Excuse me if I digress for a moment, but this fine old company marks its origins to an ironmonger's shop founded in 1797. A partner in the shop was one William Staples Bolton, who along with Joseph Paul would eventually have their names on the letterhead. The company turned its hands to many things over the years, including building summer houses that rotated on a track so that you could turn your pretty garden cabin around to catch the sun and make the most of an English summer. And Andy had a wonderful antique one in his garden. Being a bit of an av geek, I couldn't help but wonder if there was any connection. No, surely not. Mind you, from a distance, the little summer house did look a bit like a gun turret. As soon as I got home, I did some digging around, and behold, Bolton and Paul Limited were indeed the culprits, and when I was a great deal smaller, I had built a model of something they had made. It hung from the ceiling of my room to form part of a World War II model dogfight diorama. Even back then, I knew the reputation of the aircraft that I'd made, as I had it going down in a mass of cotton wool flames and peppered full of holes made by a sleek BF-109 that was flashing past it. Actually, I'd used a hot pin to burn the bullet holes through the plastic, but don't tell the 109 pilot that. The model, of course, was that of the Bolton Paul Defiant. During the First World War, Bolton and Paul began building aircraft under contract, starting with the FE-2B and then moving to the Sopwith Camel, of which they turned out 550. Between the wars, they made their mark with the introduction of powered turrets for bombers, and from a new factory in Wolverhampton, they began to design fighters. The concept of a fighter armed solely with a single turret wasn't entirely the fault of the manufacturer and their designers, but the Air Ministry, which had issued a raft of aircraft specifications for manufacturers to follow, stemming from the operational requirements envisioned at the time. 
someone obviously thought it would be a marvellous idea for a fighter to sport a turret so that it could fly beneath enemy bombers and shoot upwards into the belly of the cooperative target, who would, of course, fail to shoot back. The fact that this made the fighter completely vulnerable to a similar attack seemed to have escaped those involved. Air Ministry Specification F9-35 called for a two-seat, four-gun turret fighter to replace the previous type, the Hawker Demon biplane. Three manufacturers stepped forward, Hawker with the Hotspur, Bristol with the Type 147, and Bolton Paul's Defiant. The company's involvement with previous turret design gave it the edge with the hydraulic electric-powered gun platform. It closely resembled a long Hawker Hurricane in looks, but was about 1,500 pounds at 680 kilos heavier, although only 800 pounds was due to the turret. Despite being powered by a Rolls-Royce Merlin III, it could barely reach 300 miles an hour and took eight and a half minutes to climb to 15,000 feet. This was yet to be discovered, as the Ministry ordered a production run of 87 aircraft off the drawing board, and in all, 713 were built. Due to production delays... At the start of the war, only three airframes had reached the RAF, and it wasn't until 1940 that enough were available to mount patrols. The first squadron to become operational was 264, and it tested its performance against the Spitfire. It was discovered that although the Defiant could defend itself by continually circling, it wasn't in a position to act offensively against other fighters. It became clear that Bolton Paul had built an aircraft only capable of taking on less manoeuvrable machines such as bombers. This was emphasised in the first operational sorties when six Defiants and six Spitfires took on JU-87 Stuka dive-bombers attacking shipping in the Channel. Four of the German dive-bombers were shot down, and then, despite the presence of the Spitfires, the formation were attacked by a flight of Messerschmitt Bf-109s. Five of the six defiants went spinning earthwards. Other than the weak armament, the only guns were in the turret, and they had four Browning 303 machine-guns, as well as its less-than-stellar performance, the aircraft had other reasons to be unpopular amongst the crews who flew it, particularly the gunners. The turret was too small to allow the air gunners to wear a conventional chest or seat-mounted parachute. This resulted in the development of the rhino suit, a special all-in-one garment that wrapped around the back and contained a parachute, a dinghy, and formed the gunner's outer clothing. As Gus Platts, an air gunner who helped develop the parachute, described it, The rhino suit we had to wear on defiance was a bear, but I couldn't come up with an alternative, even though it killed dozens of us. The defiant was initially quite successful against enemy aircraft. On the 28th of May, shortly after takeoff. Ten defiants were attacked by about 30 BF-109s. 
forming a circle, they claimed six German fighters for the loss of three defiance. However, the losses mounted. On the 31st of May, seven defiance were lost in one day. During the evacuation of Dunkirk, 264 Squadron claimed 48 kills in eight days, although the cost was high, with 14 defiance lost. In reality, German losses were actually no more than 12 or 15 enemy aircraft. The turret's wide angle of fire meant that several defiance could engage the same target at one time, leading to multiple claims. Germans bouncing defiance sometimes mistook them for hurricanes and on settling in behind got quite a shock when the gunner opened fire, but they soon learned the aircraft's vulnerabilities. Once the Luftwaffe pilots got their measure, the glory days of the defiant were quickly over. The ME-109 showed its superiority in speed. Even the BF-110 could outperform the Defiant, which was now doomed to failure. They were to become death traps for their crews, incapable of dogfighting and far too slow to get away from the incoming enemy. Pilots later complained that it was also a difficult task to bail out of stricken aircraft and many had to go down with their machines. On the 26th of August 1940, 264 Squadron lost five aircraft with nine crew killed. By the end of August, over half of the delivered airframes had been shot down, a loss rate that the RAF considered unacceptable. Moved to other duties, the Defiant became quite a successful night fighter, particularly when fitted with an air intercept radar. Some aircraft became gunnery trainers and other were employed in the electronic countermeasures role, and for a while it served, rather unsuccessfully, as an air-sea rescue aircraft. But it finally found a place in the world as a target tug. During the pre-war period, the Fairy Battle was considered to hold great promise as a replacement for the Hawker Hart and Hind biplanes that were in service with the RAF. Indeed, it was a considerable improvement over its predecessors. To be fair, the RAF's requirements for this light bomber were set pretty low when they asked for a monoplane capable of carrying 1,000 pounds of bombs, that's 450 kilograms, for 1,000 miles at 200 miles an hour. Apparently, in the early 30s, many in Britain saw France as a potential enemy, and they thought there was a need for an aircraft capable of attacking Paris. It was also seen as an aircraft that might be permitted following the 1932 Geneva Disarmament Conference. Ferry were keen to have a go, and built a prototype powered by the Merlin Mark I, which actually reached a maximum speed of 257 miles an hour, doing better than any other contemporary day bomber. However, even prior to the first flight, members of the air staff had concluded that the specifications laid out were insufficient to enable its use in a prospective conflict with a re-emergent Germany. Despite this, an order for 155 was placed and the aircraft was named the Battle. 
By the end of 1937, a number of squadrons had been re-equipped, and the order for more aircraft reached 2,419. The aircraft had a clean design and followed the trend for low-wing monoplanes of the time, having an oval fuselage and a light-alloy stressed-skin monocoque structure. It had a long, continuously glazed cockpit that housed a crew of three, the pilot, a gunner and an observer, who acted as a bomb-aimer by lying down beneath the pilot's seat and peering out through a sliding panel in the floor of the fuselage using his Mark VII course-setting bomb sight. The standard bomb load were four 250-pound bombs carried internally in the wings, but two more could be racked under the wings. The pilot had the use of a single forward-firing 303 Browning in the right wing, whilst the gunner used a rear-firing 303 Vickers machine gun, which he fired from a position at the back of the cockpit. The Vickers were the guns used by the long-range desert group, who operated behind the lines in North Africa, but at least their jeeps had two of them. For a single-engine aircraft, it was large and heavy. Its span was nearly 54 feet, and empty, it still weighed over 6,600 pounds, around three metric tons. At maximum takeoff weight, that rose to nearly 10,800 pounds, close to five tons. By the time that the battle was entering service in 1937, it had already been rendered obsolete by the rapid advances in aircraft technology. For defence, its armament proved to be woefully inadequate, and it lacked other common defensive features of the era, such as an armoured cockpit and self-sealing fuel tanks. By May 1939, a total of 17 RAF squadrons had been equipped with the battle, and it remained a frontline aircraft primarily due to a lack of suitable replacement. During the Phony War, ten battle squadrons deployed to airfields in France as part of an advanced strike force, and on the 20th of September 1939, the battle scored its first aerial victory of the Second World War, for the RAF when air gunner Sergeant Letchard brought down a BF-109. Nevertheless, being 100 miles an hour slower than the German fighters, the battle was hopelessly outclassed and the losses mounted. On the 10th of May, 3 out of 8 and then 10 out of 24 were lost in a single day with the remaining aircraft suffering damage. The next day, the Belgian Air Force lost first nine and then a further six battles, and in another sortie, the same day, the RAF lost all but one from a formation of eight aircraft. A few days later, in an all-out attack to prevent German advances, a force of 63 battles struck bridges. Thirty-five aircraft failed to return. Thankfully, the battle was taken out of frontline service, but it limped on in other air forces and as trainers, target tugs, engine test beds and the like. For the low-level attack role, the RAF pressed the Mosquito, the Bowfighter, the Hurricane, the Typhoon and the P-47 Thunderbolt 
into service as a replacement. Back in 1936, the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm had taken delivery of its new torpedo bomber, the Fairy Swordfish biplane. It was a medium-sized open cockpit biplane which had a metal airframe covered in fabric and utilised folding wings to save space aboard a carrier. It was quite fondly named the String Bag, not because of all the bracing wires common to biplanes or the ease in which the slow machine could be shot up, leaving it full of holes, but the name came from the seemingly endless variety of stores, weapons and equipment that it could carry, similar in nature to that of the ubiquitous housewife's shopping bag common at the time. The swordfish was slow and vulnerable, and by the start of the war it was already considered obsolete. Enter the fairy albacore, or apple core as it was more fondly known, which was supposed to fulfil Ministry Specifications S41-36 for an improved torpedo bomber. The albacore was designed to replace the older swordfish, and the first prototype flew in late 1938. It was assessed by the test pilots at Boscombe Down, where the Bristol Taurus two-engined versions showed a stunningly unimpressive maximum speed of 160 miles an hour when carrying four underwing depth charges. Perhaps it would be faster after the depth charges were dropped, and indeed it was. It could reach 172 miles an hour. They fitted an improved Taurus 12, which showed little improvement, and in service, the albacore proved less popular than the swordfish it was designed to replace, particularly since it was far less manoeuvrable, with the controls being too heavy to allow good evasive action to be flown after dropping ordnance. Despite the fact that the albacore was clearly more modern in appearance than the swordfish, it didn't prove to be that much of an advance. The enclosed cockpit didn't give much benefit since the front of the cockpit was like a greenhouse, even in mildly sunny weather, whilst the rear of the cockpit remained draughty and chilly. The albacore went into service with the fleet air arm early in 1940, but was progressively replaced by the Barracuda from 1943 onwards. The string bag, however, the hero of the Battle of Taranto, when 12 aircraft from HMS Illustrious decimated the pride of the Italian Navy in the harbour of Taranto, sinking half of its capital ships in one night, went on to serve until May 1945, when the last squadron, 836 Naval Air Squadron, was finally disbanded. Won't you join me, crew, instead of leaving me all by myself? <laughs> We're feeling sleepy. Here. Wake up. <laughs> Nick had to wake us up a few moments ago. He, he, hey. he, he accused me of sleeping, but I was wide awake the whole time and listening and reading the, uh, the script. <laughs> it was. It was a good, uh, good Excellent. plane tale. Uh, yeah. I, I, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I feel a bit mean uh, you know, about 
you know, talking about these airplanes that really weren't very successful. Yeah, some definitely do. Uh, you know, they they were they were terrible, terrible ideas. But it wasn't necessarily the aircraft manufacturers uh, or even the uh, RAF officers who decided it was a good idea because people just didn't understand uh, how quickly uh, the technology of aviation was going to move in the second world war and aircraft were within months being um found to be obsolete because uh, someone had uh, invented a new octane of fuel that the engines could use or their a new design uh, it really did um the war uh, as sad as it was made enormous strides uh, or allowed the creation of incredible technologies very quickly mm-hmm so a lot of these airplanes were just way left way behind. I like the uh, I like the rhino suit. Oh, oh it was yeah. very, very <laughs> attractive. It looked like a huge <laughs> nappy, didn't it? <laughs> Not very attractive. It no. really did. I was like, what is that? Well, your yeah. your skydiving people don't wear those kind of things? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Much more but I mean, it, it was a parachute and a dinghy and survival stuff and and his clothes all in one package. <laughs> a very smart and stylish I mean, all, outfit. All the useful sure. things, for yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But dragging your sorry backside out of a little turret through that tiny entrance was must have been a nightmare. Wow. Yeah, not a great um, rate mm. of success as far as bailing out of that airplane. Yeah. Uh, no. All right. Well, thank you again. Um, I'm, I'm learning all kinds of new things um, every time I hear a plain tale. That's great stuff. Um, let's continue on with our feedback. And this from Down Under, from our good friend, the Flying Kiwi. He sent us in some audio feedback. Right. And we have some photos from him as well. So we can maybe show those while we're listening to his audio feedback. Mm. Hey, Ava Duper, it's the uh, Flying Kiwi here. Um, just um, wanting to weigh in on the on the Wellington Control Tower um, uh, that you, you did in the last show. Um, uh, I too live in Wellington, well, sort of. Um, I live um, out on the Kapiti Coast, uh, which is about 40 minutes drive from Wellington. Uh, but I work in town most days anyway, so go past it quite a lot. And of course, know that Control Tower very well. And, uh, and talked to quite a few of those guys operating out of that control tower when I was flying in and out of Wellington. Um, and the new control tower is, um, has a great view of, of, the, of the tarmac um, all the way over to um, the uh, main commercial hangars. It, it probably has a slightly stunted view of the, of the private stuff or the exec jet stuff, but um, not a lot of traffic happens on that side of the airport. It's all on the other side of the airport, which they have a very commanding view of. Um, and of course, it's right next to you know all of, all of the big box stores, so you know the guys can run down and do their shopping <laughs> in between you know landings. Um, the old control tower um, was on the market for just under a million New Zealand dollars, which is about five dollars fifty US, um, and it was sold very recently to for an undisclosed sum to an undisclosed bidder. Um, I think there are over a hundred. Um, uh, people applying, uh, sorry, 100,000 people, uh, yeah, 100,000 views uh, of, 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 the, uh, of the control tower and about 60 groups were led through it. Um, very challenging property 
um, because we live in New Zealand, um, everything has to be earthquake strengthened, and um, it wasn't earthquake compliant, uh, which would have required a lot of a uh, lot of money, and also it was full of asbestos. <laughs> so you know, you know, not not really a, a, a move into and renovate sort of place. Yeah, you would have had to do, do a lot of work. Um, so uh, who knows whether they're going to tear it down or not. It would be sad to see it go, but I, I can't see it being commercially viable to, to keep it as is. It would make an awesome Airbnb. <laughs> and, and, the, and the views are amazing. I've, I've been up there myself um, doing, a, doing a controlled tower visit and, and meeting, meeting the peeps. Um, the, uh, the windows are in bad shape. Um, I was told once they opened one to get in a bit of air and it, and it fell out and hit the road. Um, so because it gets a lot of the old sea breeze, a lot of that stuff is quite rusty up there. So you have to be a bit careful of it. So uh, there you go. Um, I'd, uh, I thought I'd uh, say hi, and because it's been a while, um, I've, I've actually just started, uh, well, I'm halfway through my instrument rating. Um, so I'm hoping to be um, a single engine instrument rated pilot. So I'll have to do the whole multi-engine and then become a doctor um, so I can compete. Um, I uh, will include a picture of uh, one of my flights the other day at 10,000 feet um, passing over um, the three volcanoes of the central North Island. Um, and funny enough, just as I took the photo, I was passing a waypoint called Sulphur. Would you believe it? <laughs> Aptly named. We actually do name our, a lot of our waypoints and reporting points, um, uh, you know, depending on um, where they are and who they are. Um, so, yeah, that was that was quite a nice uh, little photo and, and ho hopefully... Um, Captain Nick will appreciate it. And uh, not to be outdone on the modelling front, um, I, I might uh, send a few pics of some fairly famous um, RAF types and maybe the odd American type um, just, to, just to keep my hand in for that because I, I do quite a lot of the um, plastic bending. Although I haven't done a lot of it because I've been studying so much for these freaking exams and, uh, and trying to get on. And um, boy, oh boy. Your IFR radio really needs to be up to scratch. <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble with uh, with a lot of the readbacks, so uh, so I just need to keep practicing and, and sitting in my room and talking to myself uh, like a air traffic controller. Anyway, um, short and sweet for me. Uh, Flying Kiwi's out. Have a good one, guys. Bye. And we're uh, watching on the video. Thank you, uh, Lucas. Uh, we're going through some of the photos you sent us of the uh, models. Uh, we were talking about Darren, one of our APG community members who has uh, quite a talent with uh, making uh, these models and painting them. And um, and and uh, the Flying Kiwi uh, definitely holds his own when it comes to the same sort of thing. Uh, the paint jobs on these airplanes are just uh, incredible. Oh, they are stunning. And I, I love the one, obviously, with the black and white checkers. That's uh, a 43 Squadron Phantom from uh, the squadron that ugly I airplane. served with. Ugly. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, that's because it's American. Um, <laughs> Touche. Ah, ha, ha. <laughs> um, and uh, it was uh, painted that color just after I must have left the squadron. Uh, I could see that... Uh, um, the Flying Kiwi had put the names of the pilot, and that was obviously the boss's aircraft. So he had written uh, Ark Winkles on the front 
canopy because uh, that was the boss. Uh, I served under uh, that fine gentleman uh, for a while, but uh, left the squadron, and I guess that's just after that because I don't remember that particular paint scheme pitching up, but I do love it. It's really nice paint scheme. Yeah. Very nice indeed. I, I don't know uh, what the navigator's name was. I couldn't quite make it out. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to know, just uh, out of interest, uh, what navigator was, was on, the, which navigator was on the back cockpit. But uh, absolutely hmm. lovely. Well, such amazing detail. Definitely. And uh, Oh, yeah. by the way, those three um, volcanoes, I've got a picture of one of our hornets climbing out. Uh, they did it uh, photographed by uh, an A4 Skyhawk, uh, and uh, they had mounted a camera on the back of the Skyhawk, and uh, they did a pull-up over the uh, over that volcano, and uh, it's just a stunning picture. It, it just absolutely lovely. Well, dear listeners, if you want to see these great photos that uh, Lucas sent in, the Flying Kiwi, you uh, should uh, check it out. Well, they'll be in the show notes. And congrats on your progress in the, uh, in the piloting world and your, and your uh, licenses and such, such. Yep. Keep studying. Let us know when, um, you know, when you've completed it. Yeah, when we can cheer. Yes. I mean, right. we can cheer now. Always, that's always good. To, a lot you know, of work. Should mention, uh, yeah. Should we should we do that stuff? You say okay. Let's uh, yeah. do a cheer, a quick cheer. <clears throat> so uh, we should also point out that um, Lucas is in the top tier of our patrons on Patreon. So uh, we really appreciate his fin- financial support of the show. He believes in us, and we do appreciate that. I wish. By the way, did. I've. I've- I've got a, a picture of that squadron boss uh, wearing a, a, a boy's school uniform uh, <laughs> in the back of my Renault 16, uh, drunk, uh, as we drove out to uh, wish the pilots and navigators who were holding QRA that night uh, Happy New Year. It was, We'd had a big mess costume party, and uh, the boss thought it would be a good idea if... Uh, those of us that were left standing went out and wished Q <laughs> Happy New Year. I'm not sure they really appreciated it when about 15 drunken blokes pitched up. They were, you know, dozing in their cots uh, and um, <laughs> perfectly sober. <laughs> well, I have a picture of Captain Nick in a girl's school uniform. So uh, keeping that one handy for... When it's necessary. I think we've all got our share of things <laughs> to use for blackmail at certain points. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can only blackmail me if I worry about that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually proud of it. All <laughs> right. Um, speaking of um, New Zealand and Wellington and the tower, um, we have mentioned that uh, Glenn is from that area, Glenn Tower. And uh, oh, I should, wait, hang on. I, I need to do this the right way. Announcing the mayor of Airventure. There we go. Glenn Teller sent us some audio feedback. Good day, Captain, Captain, retired Captain, Doctor, and fellow APG syndrome sufferers. It's Glenn here from New Zealand with some feedback. You asked for some feedback about the Wellington Air Traffic Control Tower, so here I am. Your wish is my command. Um, 
Arnold, I think it was his nickname. Why they call it Arnold, but anyway. Yes, like you said on the podcast, it was the only air traffic control tower that had its own postal address, which is kind of weird. It was built on a hillside overlooking the Wellington Airport and um, had great views of the, of course, of the of the airport and the sea and etc. I mean, I would have loved to have, you like Stafford, go buy it. And it's like, uh, no. I think it's eight hundred and sixty nine thousand dollars I think they wanted for the place and I'm like, okay, I ain't got that money. So there's no way I'm gonna pay that. So yeah, it's awesome. I want I really want to actually uh when they just after they closed it I want to try and get the aeronautical society we could do like tours of the place and charge people money to, for ra- fundraising for our um youth and aviation thing, but that's just never happened. So yeah, apparently it's been sold to the Wellington Airport. So who knows what's going to happen next? Are they going to keep it or are they going to knock it down? Apparently it's it had asbestos and everything. And to get to the actual control tower, the the le- the pent what they call it, the penthouse or something, you had to um, climb up a narrow set of steps or something, and it was just yeah. So I have actually been to the new control tower. It's very nice, very interesting. I'll put some pictures and sending you some photos of the new control tower. It's very nice, fully automated. Uh, as soon as an aircraft takes off, it picks up the transponder, says, yes, it's an A320, blah, blah, speed, height, etc., etc., etc. It's very, all very clever. Um, it's all paperless, this new control tower, so I'm not sure, sure opposing bases would um, be jealous of a, you know, a fully automated control. So that's about it, really. Yeah, so um, welcome back. You know, it's good to have you guys back, of course, back on the air again. Oh, thank you for all the kind the kind words about the Oshkosh celebrity and all that. And I've been called the mayor of Oshkosh, so, uh, well, I should be really the mayor of Adventure, really. But yeah, so, um, yeah, it's. Um, I miss everyone. I miss everyone from, of course, we didn't. Uh, looking forward to Oshkosh 21, of course. Um, fingers crossed it actually is going to happen this year. Anyway, that's about it, really. Um, not much else to say about the control tower. Part of a very cool place, and I'd wish I'd visited it before it closed, but anyway. All right, that's about it. All right, Glenn out. I uh, I thought we had a rule that we're not supposed to mention the basis. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, we made that rule At least he called now. himself yeah. Glenn instead of GT. Well, it didn't tonic. Uh, by the way, I'm not very impressed with that automated uh, um, tracking system. If you get airborne and it calls you an A321, <laughs> if you're a Boeing. I or, know. Uh, yeah. Some definite flaws in the system. Yeah, it could be a Cessna 150 and it comes up A321. A321. Yeah. Well, yeah. we got the low there was price a good, version. Well, yeah. There was a good uh, dis- online discussion about, um, you know, um, Air traffic controllers calling aircraft by the wrong types because it got entered in the system as, you know, PA-28, but, you know, the Cherokee or Warrior or something. And it mm-hmm. just kind of went on and on from there. So that happens even in non-automated I'm glad I'm not the only one well. that gets confused about what a PA-28 and whether it's a Warrior or a Cherokee or it's just too complicated. I mean, apart from upsetting someone's feelings, does it really matter? No. <laughs> well. No, <laughs> guess not. Well, and apparently a lot of like the the home built kits and things, like the Ford, you know, letter identifiers, like no one knows what those actually are. So it's just, um, hey you, <laughs> yeah, hey bug smasher, bug yeah, exactly. Out there. Yeah. 
All right, let's uh, jump around. We have uh, just under a half an hour remaining in the show, and so I want to make sure that we get some of these in. And then for those that aren't covered on today's show, we'll move it on over into the trash can. I mean, over into the uh, lineup for the next show, <laughs> as far as you know. And maybe after time, you'll forget that you sent us feedback. Just kidding. Um this one, last week, we mentioned uh, the fact that I had a Tulsa layover. I got to meet up with the uh, APG community member, Larry the Geezer uh, Gregory, and he mentioned that he had taken some video of my landing on runway 26 and said something about the fact that uh, right about the time that I was touching down, there was a dumpster being emptied behind him or something and some kind of a sound and kind of made a joke about whether or not that was the sound coming from my airplane or the dumpster and uh, so let's go ahead uh, liz and play that right now okay got that video okay we're coming in and Okay, so it was a little <laughs> bit firm. That'll buff out. It's kind of a firm landing. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. The passengers managed to get off without any problem then. <laughs> I had to call. Yeah, just to... through the hole in the fuselage. Yeah, that's well, right. you know, just... it was Tulsa. A lot of uh, a lot of good contract maintenance there. We're able to uh, put the tail back on the airplane and uh, a lot <laughs> yeah, of speed, speed tape. tape. Yeah. <laughs> actually, uh, no, that wasn't really my landing. Although Tom actually sent that, he said so. Uh, let's see. No, he didn't say that. Where did, where did he say? Uh, whilst you might have seen this, I did think of it watching APG 447, I think, when I was talking about my landing. so. Um, but now we're going to actually play the real video that Larry sent. And that was not that was not sound coming from my airplane. That was actually coming from behind. That's almost as good. I know. I could have easily added some cartoon sound effects to that one as well, I think. I think that was absolutely perfect. Just as soon as we came down, crunch. I know. And it disappeared behind the, the berm. Yep. All right. I appreciate that, Larry. And Tom. And uh, so I got this from... Alex in Tulsa, and I really got excited because I thought that this was the. You, you remember I told you about the guy that was holding up the, listening to our podcast when he was getting off the airplane, and I'm thinking, oh, right. this must yeah. be the guy. Um, and he said, uh, "Sorry, I've listened to so much of the podcast, I feel like I know you. You don't have to be sorry about that. Uh, my name is Alex, and I'm an ANP mechanic. More specifically, I'm an engine mechanic." Where I work, we perform shop visits on Rolls-Royce Tays, uh, Gulfstream 4 and 450, the International Aero Engines V2500A5, the General Electric CFM56-5B. Last two are installed on the A320 family. I'm currently working in the test cell as night shift crew chief, but I have about 10 years' experience as an engine mechanic. Anyway, I live and work in the Tulsa area and was wondering if you'll be having more overnights here. I'm sure I will. If so, um, you have to go to McNally's with me sometime. They have a vast amount of beers on tap, and I'm sure we could find an excellent IPA in no time. It's actually next door to the downtown location of Albert G's Barbecue. 
please let me know via email if you're going to be here on short notice. Call me at blah, blah, blah. I would really enjoy getting a beer with you sometime. Thank you so much for the great podcast. Thanks, Alex McGuffin. And uh, so um, I, I sent him back. I said, oh, I'm so glad to find out who it was that got it. And then, again, it was not him. It was somebody else. And he said, uh, um, yeah, the guy deplaning was not me. Sorry. <laughs> it was somebody else. Damn. Um, Mr. Anonymous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I make yourself dim- known, sir, whoever Pardon you are me? out there. Say it again. I said, make yourself known, sir, yes. whoever you are out there, Anonymous. Well, probably too embarrassed. <laughs> Podcast listeners. All right. Fair enough. Um, I would be too. So... <laughs> Uh, McNally's is a place I've been. It's been many, many years. Uh, Albert G's was the place that we had the big meetup in Tulsa a few years back that Larry um, Gregory um, organized. And uh, anyway, um, Alex goes on to say, you were talking about GTFs, geared turbofan engines. Like many other commercial aircraft engines, they are susceptible to the phenomenon we call phenomenon. We call rotor bow or bow bow. This is in essence when one side of the N2 high group HPC slash slash HPT, high pressure compressor, high pressure turbine rotor cools faster than the other and could potentially cause the rotor to not spin quite as freely or seize. We do our best to correct this by crank cycles before and after starting and allowing warm up cool down periods at idle before and after the engine is at power. This condition is exacerbated on the GTF because the core engine is so small, driving such a large fan. And he says, please don't quote me. Okay, that's not a quote. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That wasn't a quote. I actually was just, um, uh, what was the uh, term? I was uh, summarizing. I was, um, uh, there's another word for it. But anyway, that was not him. That wasn't his, those weren't his words. I just made all that up. (laughs) <laughs> of course. Now that I just read, hey, so that's actually that's actually a thing with the engine on the um, Supervan Caravan, the um, huh? straight drive um, Garrett. Uh, was it the Honeywell TPE three thirty one? I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, before and, and then after shutdown, you do want to go out and um, um, actually just rotate the prop through a number of times because it helps cool everything down evenly, so that you don't get that bowing effect. Hmm. Oh, I get it, bowing. Boeing. Yeah. No. <laughs> that one, uh, no. Boeing. No, not that kind of rotor. Boeing. The rotor bow. <laughs> what do you mean yeah. when something's bent and stuck? Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, you don't want you don't want curved um, shafts. It's not that well. ideal. <laughs> Why? Okay. Is that, is it, oh, never mind. Um, moving uh-huh. on. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> uh, Paul. Uh, our good friend Paul from um, Ohio slash Pennsylvania works at a nuclear power plant somewhere up there um, in Pennsylvania, I believe, Western PA. Um, he sent in some audio feedback regarding something that's coming up pretty soon. Hi, APG crew. I just wanted to let everybody know there will be something special happening at Lakeland Linder International Airport in Lakeland, Florida. It's called the Sun and Fun Holiday Flying Festival and Car Show. It'll take place on Friday, December 4th and Saturday, December 5th, 2020. There will be a car show with classics to exotics, vintage and kits, and not to mention all kinds of aircraft, either flying or on static display. There will be a balloon glow on Friday evening and a 5K run to start your Saturday. Some of the other featured attractions include U.S. Army Black Daggers Parachute Team, 
the F-35 Lightning II, and F-16 Viper demos. There will also be stole competitions and town hall meetings with the presidents of Sun and Fun, AOPA, and EAA. Also, Santa will be flying into Sun and Fun in a Stearman. There is Plainside and RV camping available. I'll be volunteering at the show, and there are still volunteer positions open if you might be interested. If you would like more detailed information on updated schedule of events, please visit their website at flysnf.org. That's Foxtrot Lima, Yankee Sierra, November, foxtrot.org. Thank you. I hope to see you all there. That's great, Paul. Uh, you'll have to give us a report um, about either while you're there or when you return home about your experience over at uh, Sun and Fun Holiday Festival and Car Show in Lakeland, Florida. And let's continue with uh, number nine. Uh, this is from Thomas. And Thomas uh, sent a photo. And I'm going to see if I can select it here. Um, here we go. He said, guts, skill, or dumb? He says, look, look closely. So I'm looking at this closely and it looks like engines one and two and four are feathered. And engine number three is actually the only engine that seems to be spinning a prop. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're about to touch down. I hope. I don't know. What do you think? I, you're muted, Nick. Sorry, I was just saying he hasn't got many wheels down. If that's the oh, that's true. Yeah. At this point, he might not care that much about. I the, think he's probably nice doing a surface. demonstration flight. Oh, could be showing probably. how this airplane can fly just fine with one engine. Exactly. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. I'm assuming it's a Lancaster. Yeah, I can't tell. I mean, it uh, looks pretty much like it. He's got one wheel low, down in the back. The caption all the is tail low were probably Lincoln? down all the time. I know. What did you say, stuff? <laughs> the caption on the photo says, Low Lincoln. Oh, it's low a Lincoln, is it? Okay. Lincoln. Okay. Low. Very similar to the uh, Lancaster. Oh, the, uh, Where do you see that caption? I don't even see it. If you open up the photo um, to its full size in Evernote, at the uh-huh. very top left, it says, LowLincoln.jpg. Okay. I still don't nice. see that. <laughs> But it's an impressive uh, feat, anyway. I mean, I, I obviously just was able to identify this aircraft as uh, as a Lincoln. Yeah, that was my skill in identifying. I thought, wow, old bombers. I'm, I'm very impressed with your World War II <laughs> English bomber identification <laughs> skills stuff. We definitely know that it's non-existent. So that's yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Thomas. Um, moving on, we had talked about the. Venerable three-holer, the uh, Studebaker, the B727. And uh, let's see, we received a couple of pieces of feedback regarding it. Uh, David sent in some, oh, I need to find that. Here we go. I'm going to click on that. Um, It flew over my house before going over to Anglesey, Wales for training. Great podcast. Love it. This is David Shannon, and he shows the plane finder track of this airplane that we saw all of us uh, on the crew at uh, Farnborough in 2016 or maybe 27 that's right yeah um, 2016 made uh, lots of joke about chemtrails didn't we yes, oh, yes. because they actually do uh, put out chemtrails in this airplane purposely definitely yeah hydrogen dioxide um, 
Actually, I think Variety. it's about that kind. And also, I think that – actually, it's some kind of an oil dispersant um, oh. that they put out uh, for specifically for oil spills, I think. I don't think this one's a firefighting one. It's a one that they use for – Oh, that's right. Like, You're right. You're in the water. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Call signs. Now, that map at the uh, top on the left there, uh-huh. that's uh, where I spent four years. And, in fact, as it goes around – uh, that loop to the south and then turns north again. He was making an approach there to uh, RAF Valley where I served. Neat. That was very cool. Yeah, that was the Air Force base where I served four years as a flying instructor. At uh, Delta Sierra Alpha DSA, that must be the three letter identifier for where it says Doncaster. Maybe that's a uh, that, that'll probably be start and finish. This ah. was, I suspect, just a bit of on uh, on route training. Oh, okay, never mind. Well, this one, uh, well, actually, the, both of them show a little bit of a snapshot of the uh, of the airplane. Very impressive, seven twenty seven. They put on a pretty nice show at Farnborough. Yeah, um, and then Matt, uh, item eleven, sent in another one. Thank you, Liz. Um, seven twenty seven at MSP with the recent seven two seven talk. I thought I'd share a picture I took of a seven twenty seven that came to Minneapolis St. Paul a couple of weeks ago. It was one of those arrivals that brought out all the spotters. This is a great photo here. Um, you can see uh, Minneapolis uh, skyline in the uh, background and in the foreground. A beautiful seven twenty seven two hundred operated by Kalita. Charters, uh, Kalita Charters 2. And uh, yeah. It's a lovely looking airplane, isn't it? It really is. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think I've told the story several times, but it's been a while. Um, when we were flying into Phoenix once in the 7 2, a guy poked his head in the uh, cockpit door and said that he and a, a, the friend of his he was traveling with were both engineers on the um, at Boeing um, when they were designing the 727 and Boeing had never built a uh, T-tail aircraft and they weren't Mm -hmm. sure exactly how, you know, beefy the structure had to be in the back for, um, for that T-tail arrangement. And they said that they probably built it at least three times more rugged than it really needed to be. Because again, they weren't just weren't sure exactly you know, uh, how how uh, the structure was going to hold up back in the back. I thought that was kind of cool, just to meet somebody that had something to do with the design of the, uh, the 7-2. It's quite an angle they had to duct that air down mm-hmm. to get to the engine, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and it was, uh, you had to be very careful with that um, center engine. Not so much on the uh, L-1011, because it was a much larger S-duct, but on the 727, it was a smaller diameter obviously and um the way i guess the angles or something i don't know when you, anytime you had a crosswind you had to be very very careful that you didn't run up that number two engine too quickly before you got some forward um, speed and the flow was not disrupted because you could easily uh, get compressor stalls on that number two engine so we'd always what the technique was especially if you had any crosswind at all we just bring up one and three to a certain point and the airplane would start rolling and then you get to about 30 knots or so if i recall uh, and then you start um, smoothly bringing in the number two engine, and then you usually get away with it without compressor stalls. Anywho, um, yeah. So there's uh, some more good stuff about that 727, which is such a such a great airplane. Um, let's see. Alex sent in a a noob question. Do you think we have time to answer? I think we do. We have about ten minutes remaining. I think we should go for a number thirteen. 
So let's see. Take it away, Alex. Hey, good evening, crew. This is Alex from Central Oklahoma. Uh, I have some feedback that's probably more appropriate for the Aces crew, but figured I'd try it out on you fine folks first, if that's okay. Uh, I, um, I'm i a low time, about 150-hour uh, VFR pilot, and I was returning uh, on a long cross-country leg uh, back from vacation with my wife, and uh, we were talking to uh, air traffic control getting flight following the whole way back. And uh, as I neared, you know, the central Oklahoma area, there's a cluster of airports that I have to essentially pass to get to my smaller non-towered class echo uh, destination field. And as I'm entering into that airspace, I get bounced around from center to uh, regional approach, then to CTAF. And when I was about 10 miles from my destination, um, I was I requested to change over to CTAF from the regional approach frequency. And I was kind of told no, I think due to some traffic conditions that they wanted to keep talking to me for. And uh, eventually it was about four miles from the destination airfield where they turned me over to CTAF and immediately kind of changed over, started making my calls, realized there was another aircraft about to turn base for the faint, uh, same runway uh, where I was making my straight-in approach and, and felt like I had lost a little bit of spatial awareness by, um, you know, checking in with CTAF so late. And, uh, you know, we talked to each other, worked it out. It was fine, but that did make me feel a little bit uncomfortable and, uh, you know, I guess my question is, how, you know, how, how do you handle that situation? And I know in the, in the commercial world, you guys don't run into that at all, but maybe for, for Dr. Steph, um, or, you know, members of the, of the YouTube chat, just to see what, uh, you know, I guess I could, uh, bounce back and forth between frequencies, but as I was preparing to land, uh, didn't feel like that was the best use of my focus. And I'm sure there's a, a much more elegant way to handle this on my side. So just looking for some feedback there. Uh, thank you all so much for what you do. Glad to have you back on the air and talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Sorry for all the audio interruptions. We're having some issues here with StreamYard or maybe my computer. I don't know what's going on. That's uh, I it's think all it's a StreamYard issue tonight. Falling yeah. up. I think it's just all falling apart here at the end. We're, we're uh, pushing it as hard as we can. Anyway, um, so um, let's see. I'm happy to take yeah, some of that. I, th I thought uh, you'd be perfect. That for, yeah. yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, this is, you know, every time I go out and fly dealing with this type of stuff, because um, we are talking to um, flying out of a non-towered field. So, you know, you want to be talking, um, making intentions known on the CTAF, but then um, flying into controlled airspace and into a Bravo airspace. So you definitely have to be on that frequency before you enter that airspace and have a clearance to, to get in there. Um and typically what happens, um, and it, some of this might depend on how your aircraft is set up. Um, I can't look at the video right now because Jeff's video is, if you're not watching the, the YouTube video, Jeff's <laughs> video is playing catch up and it's like, he's talking like really fast over me, but I'm going to just look away and do the, you know, stare off into the distance, answer the question, um, mode. Um, so two ways that we, that I deal with this one is that, um, having two radios so that you can be monitoring your CTAF frequency and at least listening there to help build that situational awareness, that mental picture of what's going on, um, you know, at the airport that you are um, either departing from or arriving at. Um, and then also having some way to display ADSB information. So it's having um, 
any and all available traffic that you can find available um, displayed on uh, graphically for you so you can see where other folks are out there and that gives you a little bit of uh, um, more situational awareness. Obviously, neither one is completely foolproof as sometimes targets don't show up on some of those ADSB receivers and some pilots don't talk on the radio. Um, but that is uh, basically the two strategies I have for trying to, to deal with that situation. Um, I'm not sure, usually if I ask to switch over to advisory or to CTAF, um, as long as I've got the airfield in sight and there's no real compelling reason to have to stay with the um, controller that I'm talking to as long as I'm not still in their airspace. Um, that's usually a um, wish that is granted. So I'm not sure why they wanted to keep you on unless they were um, definitely concerned about pointing out additional traffic and targets to you. But um, yeah, those would be my, my two suggestions. And I guess a lot of that just depends on how your aircraft is set up. So certainly smaller aircraft, single engine, you might not have... Um, eh, might not have two radios and you might not have um, an ADS-B um, solution, but um, I highly recommend getting a Stratus if you're going to be doing a lot of flying, um, and then that can display ADS-B um, targets onto your um, iPad or ForeFlight, potentially, as a workaround. Good solution. Mm -hmm. Seems no. to me like the air trafficker just was trying to make his life simple and not uh, really help the pilot out very much, but... How, well, what and it may there? just not have been something that they were completely thinking about from that side of, of you know, from the pilot side of things. Yeah, another rude air traffic controller. I've never met one of those. But well. yeah, let us know what the uh, the folks over at uh, Opposing Pieces <laughs> <laughs> um, have to say about that. I'll have to listen out for their, their I, response I to, to this as I well. I need to tell you a little secret. Those, uh, those folks over at... Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> those, shoes, those, those folks over there at uh, a bases, yeah. um, they're really not air traffic controllers. <laughs> really what not only that, but they're not really, well, they are pilots, but they're just not, not very good ones. <laughs> just kidding. Shots fired there. So. I, right. I, I, I feel like I should, should defend them just a little. I mean, no, nice they're really great and, uh, guys. Yeah. And I, I've actually talked to... Um, one of them on the radio while flying. So, okay. So there might be some evidence that they there, really there, are controllers. Yeah, I have. I have a little bit of, of uh, proof okay. that they <laughs> exist and they do the job they brother. claim to do. Uh, his twin, evil yeah. twin, twin brother. Oh, we kid. They're really great guys, great pilots, great air traffic controllers, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure that they'll give you a, a really good answer. Not quite as good as ours, but I'm glad you came to us first, Alex. Smart man. Smart. <laughs> yeah, smart move. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that, watch out for the one called RH and the helicopter pilot there. Yeah. They're the troublemakers. <laughs> well, that would be both of them. <laughs> that's the whole crew. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess you're right. All right. Uh, well, that's going to wrap it up. I'm completely frozen on the video here. I do apologize. Oh, no, no. You're now getting <laughs> no, no. a thousand miles an hour. Am I? Okay. Here, <laughs> yes. let me turn. I'm going to turn off my camera, though. I don't want to. <laughs> scare anybody anymore was, oh, no, I, love it. Right. I was like is he trying to say something turn it on, and, I turn can't it on. <laughs> and uh let's see it's a time that we always talk about uh learning more about the show the crew the community um the calendar merchandise the coffee fund plain tales uh the abg library and more and again that's all at the airlinepilotguy.com website and we're also on social media, the social meets. Hey, we are. You can head over to twitter.com. We are at APG Crew. 
also Instagram at APG Crew. And if Facebook is your preferred social media, that is facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. So please come over there, be social with us, and we'll see you there. All right. And we're also on Slack. So let's see. Let's see if I can find the switch for the hidden microphone that I have in the APG headquarters uh, fortified basement studio. Hello. Hello. It's time for Slack. Okay, but I'm dripping wet. I'm sorry. Um, come on over here. Make sure you're all dried off. Yep, yep. Oh, you're getting me. Okay. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. And uh, I don't know, uh, Steph, did you find out... um if that's a burrito or a loofah that uh, he's holding there in the shower. Still uncertain. Okay. We'll have to wait for him to get back mm-hmm. with us on that one. No way, Jeff. I'm social distancing. Okay. Very I good. guess we won't find out for Surely a while. you just have to smell his armpits to see what it you know, smells mm. of Mexican food or no, whether you. they're nice and clean. It could be a burrito. I'm and glad he's holding... we're socially distancing right now. Yeah. Just <laughs> say he's that. Ho- he's holding hot sauce in his, his other hand, I think. That's it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, with the, oh, and of course, uh, now Liz, poor thing, has been dealing with all kinds of uh, computer issues and connection issues and everything else, and she's done a just amazing job this episode, as she always yeah, does. Yeah, well but done, Liz. Especially so this time. So thank you, Liz, for putting up with all the, all the hassles of doing this. Uh, we'll do I think she's quitting after this episode. <laughs> she might be submitting her two-week notice. <laughs> And uh, but she can't wait for her new uh, MacBook, 13-inch uh, MacBook Pro to, to arrive. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, um, yeah. So when are you getting yours, Jeff? I am um, gonna wait until they, <laughs> they uh, have a. Yeah, I'm gonna have to maybe take a look at it because my my uh, computer is doing all kinds of weird things here today. So, uh, but I'm gonna hold out for the the bigger version uh, next year, the 16-inch. So mm-hmm. we'll see. <laughs> 16 and on. with that, uh, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm. 16 inches, huh?
friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I guy I fly Oh, man, oh, airline, I guy I 